And it's your boy Roshan Gomez uh, from the Rumah Roy podcast. You're listening to the Rumah Roy podcast with a special episode. This is our first online version. So uh, it's an experiment. Let's see if it goes well. And um, I'm very, very happy to have two guests on. Two guests who are very familiar to me. I welcome to the house, <laughs> this virtual house, Mr. Joshua Mahadevan and Mr. Christian Gomez. Welcome. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> hello, everybody. <laughs> so, Christian's uh, been here before. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, all of you, both of you, have uh, visited Rumah Roy physically before. Oh. Joshua, not yeah. enough. Joshua's not visited enough. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. I have to say though, I do visit physically, and I leave almost double the size uh, <laughs> as I came in because of all the delectable food that's always there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So to just that clear the elephant in the room. There might be some personal biases uh, <laughs> in this conversation, just because I like my two guests very much. Uh, because we have familial ties, right? So Joshua is my cousin, one of my eldest cousins. So I defer to him with respect, <laughs> as every as every Indian family uh, would know. We respect our elder cousins. A very uh, unfound respect, unfortunately. <laughs> and of course, Christian Gomez, my younger brother. So no respect at all. <laughs> None whatsoever. None whatsoever. None deserved. <laughs> Belligerent. <laughs> so okay, boys. I, I the reason why I reached out to you is because I I did an episode with my friend Alif Malik on uh, COVID and on his views about COVID. Now I just want to say the reason why I had that conversation was because I had a lot of disagreements with Alif, right? And my thing was, my whole objective was how can I create a conversation with someone I disagree with? And I thought that process would be interesting for people to listen to. But I did get a lot of feedback. Some people felt, some people did see that, but some people said, you know, it might have been better if there was also someone there who was a bit more stronger on the facts or could have provided a better counter-narrative to Alif, right? Because I, I was playing the middleman when maybe there should also have been someone on the other side challenging Alif's uh, positions uh, stronger, right? Yeah, well, I think you did a remarkable job to try and defend fact. But also, I think balancing that act uh, between wanting to dispute what someone says and also maintaining ties of friendship is quite hard. So maybe having someone who was not a friend or wasn't an acquaintance or didn't have familial ties <laughs> <laughs> may have uh, provided an alternative view for your listeners. Yeah. And um, the second uh, kind of constructive feedback I got was that I was legitimizing Alev's views. Um, this one I'm a bit more cautious because there were things that Alif said that was legitimate, I would say, I would argue. And so, and that ultimately, I wasn't, that wasn't, Alif is sincere in what he's saying. He's mm -hmm. not a con man. He's not out there to grief anyone. He's not running for politics, mm -hmm. right? These are things that he sincerely believes and many people believe what he believes. Not only in Malaysia, not only in the Kampongs, but you're hearing the same arguments in the British Parliament now, you're hearing the same thing in America uh, uh, and other countries, right? So, I thought it was just a pertinent conversation. But because of all the feedback and because the episode is doing so well, I thought, okay, let's have this conversation because people seem really interested by it. But let's do the, the other side of it, which I'm also interested in as well, right? So, I decided to get a doctor and a scientist uh, or someone with, a, 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 with lab experience, right? So, maybe both of you could uh, just uh, introduce yourself and just... Tell the audience a little bit about your background. Uh, Christian, you want to go first? Okay, sure. Um, I'm the scientist he's referring to, but I'm barely cutting it. 
Uh, I'm a wildlife researcher actually and I was on the podcast a couple of months ago to speak about my work with uh, uh, clouded leopards on Borneo. But another part of my job is to bring um, you know, genetic samples into the lab and use genetic tools to test these samples for viruses, in fact. And so a lot of the tools that we've been talking about in the last few months quite profusely, like PCR and antigen kits and antibody kits, it's stuff I, I kind of use on a day-to-day basis in the lab. So it's, it's, um, it's helped me a lot in my understanding. I must say, I've, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a disease expert. But just, um, you know, working around the circle of people who deal with these things um, has been very, very helpful to my understanding. So I guess that's the perspective that I'm going to bring today. Yeah, um, look, I'm Josh. I'm a neurologist. I work in uh, the Royal Adelaide Hospital in South Australia. My passion is vascular neurology or stroke and other aspects of neurology as well and its intersection with uh, philosophy and perception. Um, Being a a vascular neurologist, I have to have particular interest in public health and epidemiology, which uh, I have a basic understanding of. Uh, Going through medical school, we learn... uh, aspects of this as well, and aspects of immunology and vaccinology and uh, virology. So um, I am going to aim to provide uh, my perspective, uh, which is based on what I've learned uh, from institutions like the University of Adelaide and other, <laughs> um, other uh, uh, institutions that we look to uh, when we need advice on, on things that are, uh, are moving fast around the world. Yeah, Great. so it's a medical perspective. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so we live in weird times. Uh, now, uh, Joshua, you're, you're based in um, uh, Australia. Christian, you're based in, uh, I'm not going to say uh, um, Sabah, like it's not part of Malaysia. You're based in Malaysia, but you're on the East, East Borneo side, right? Very, so, very compassionate of you. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, irrespective of where we are, all around it's weird times for all of us. So I want to ask, maybe you can start again with uh, Christian first. How how are you doing? How is this how has this whole situation affected you? How are you coping? I think right now at this moment I'm in quite a lot of frustration actually. Because um, you know, I've been this whole year has been deeply affecting me. And you know, despite my views and you know, despite understanding what this virus is and why why we need to overcome this, um the effects have been real, you know. I just give you like a summary. I, w- I, I had a dream opportunity to pursue a fellowship in the US early in the year. And like three weeks into the fellowship, the US got hit hard with COVID and everything went on lockdown. So a lot of my experiences that I would have otherwise, you know, experienced in a university in the US was curtailed. I couldn't do it. Although I could do my work, but, you know, the, the exciting things like going to see national parks and going to Washington, D.C. And, um, you know, all those things I was looking forward to, I just could not do anymore. Um, and then even after returning home, uh, my movements have been so difficult. Uh, you know, I've been in Sabah now for four months, unable to go home. Uh, my girlfriend's just come back from the U.S. and we're doing a long-distance relationship. And she's in Kuching, which is only an hour's flight away, but I cannot go visit her. Mm. And I likely will not be able to for the rest of the year. So it's, 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 yeah, it's frustrating. It's not, it's not been easy. Yeah. Um, my perspective is a polar opposite. Um, we have had a very low prevalence of the virus in, in South Australia. We've been lucky. Uh, we instituted 
quite harsh uh, travel restrictions. Um, so from a day-to-day perspective, you know, it's almost business as usual. We go to the shops, we just maintain our distance, we use the masks in healthcare situations. Um, so the economy is kind of uh, kicking back up, uh, jobless rates dropping, you know, so we haven't seen the devastation that we've seen in like, for, for example, America or Sabah even. What's been frustrating is the uncertainty, because I live in Australia, I live in Adelaide, and my parents still live in uh, Malaysia, my cousins, you know, they're all there. And that uncertainty kind of drives itself home in times close to Christmas, you know, where you always go home, you catch up with family, and you don't know when the next time it'll be safe for you to travel. Being a healthcare worker, there's more restrictions to my movements. I'm not allowed to go interstate uh, if, uh, for no apparent reason, because I'm a, a, a high-risk person. So I have to take kind of personal responsibility to limit some of my movements. Um, so that's been the, for me, the downside predominantly has been from uh, the inability to, you know, visit home, worried, you know, what happens if my parents, something happens to my parents, how am I going to travel back? You know, that, that kind of thing um, is, has been the frustration for me. Uh, but otherwise, you know, we've been quite lucky here. Okay, nice, nice. Um so let's get just straight into it, lah, boys. Does COVID even exist? <laughs> is it? Let's say this it, on three. One, two, three. Of yes. course, it exists. <laughs> there's no. There's. I think. I think questioning that is like questioning. You know. Okay. If this is how I liken questioning the existence of something like COVID, right? Okay. When we develop knowledge, right? There's a lot of knowledge that actually we get. Uh, from testimony, right? Like mm. you go to school, your teacher tells you, oh, the blue whale is the largest uh, w- uh, mammal on the planet, right? Mm. Have you ever seen a blue whale, Roshan? <laughs> Christian, have you ever seen a blue whale? And you know what's even funnier? Have you ever seen a blue whale next to an elephant so that you know the blue whale is uh, is larger than the elephant? Have you Have you seen that yourself? No. But you take that as knowledge because, you know, someone, a scientist, maybe, has measured a blue whale. They've measured dozens of blue whales and they figured out, actually, on average, the blue whale measures a larger size uh, than an elephant or other mammals, right? So you have kind of accepted that knowledge as fact, right? So similarly, just because you haven't seen the virus, just because it looks a funny way when people try and illustrate it for for your understanding, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, So... Just bear that in mind. Uh, yeah. How you get your knowledge is very, very, very important and vital to the misunderstanding that goes on, I think, throughout this whole pandemic. Yeah. Christian, before you respond, maybe I can also just say, I think a more generous uh, point from those who discount or disbelieve in COVID is that COVID is just the flu, right? So maybe we can address, is COVID, have you been duped? Is COVID just another flu with a new name on it? I think I'll defer to Christian because uh, for me, the answer is no and I have my reasons for it. But Christian, do you want to answer that? Or? Well, I think one day COVID will just be a, a flu. One day in the near future. The difference between COVID and the regular flu, you know, and I, I, I struggled to use the word flu because when I was growing up, every time we got sick, we called it a flu when it was not a flu, it could have been anything. It could have been an infection or, you know, it could be anything, but we loosely use the term flu, right? But um, one day COVID may be the flu. The difference is, is that COVID is novel. And novel means it's new. It's never been exposed. No human being on the planet has been exposed to COVID before. And that's very, very alarming. 
you know, the theory now is that it came from a wild animal. Don't know where. Not exactly sure. But the theory is that it came from a wild animal. And there are many of such diseases that are harboring in wildlife that we don't know about, that have never been exposed uh, to humans. AIDS was a, a virus that came from primates, right? And how it got transmitted sexually from a primate to a human, I'm not sure. Um, but that's how it happened, right? And it's the same with COVID. It transmitted from wildlife to humans. Uh, and no, up till then, up to that point, no human being on the planet had been exposed to this virus. And that's why it's not the regular flu. One day, maybe five years from now, it will be a regular flu. Okay. I just want to talk about the semantics, yeah? So when we talk about flu in the general sense, we say, oh, I feel lethargic. I've got flu-like symptoms, right? Flu-like symptoms derives its name from the fact that people who used to get the flu, which is actually a very specific type of virus, it's influenza. We refer to it using the H and the N because that bit, the histamine and neuraminidase, are bits that uh, are different in different types of flus, Right? Uh, flu virus carries a very different DNA structure to coronavirus. Corona mm. being crown, so it's got an appearance of having a crown. So when you look at uh, what it is, just it is not the flu virus. It can produce flu-like symptoms, right. flu-like illness, but it's not the flu virus. And flu has got this antigenic shift and drift that can occur during different periods, the DNA can reassort in different humans and then you've got a new package, a flu with a new uh, structure and a new genetic code that can go around the world uh, at different times of the year. And it's seasonal, right? We don't know whether coronavirus is going to become seasonal. We just don't have enough information to tell you uh, that the probability of it being a seasonal virus is very, very high. We don't. It's something that we haven't observed. Like Christian said, it's novel, right? Mm. But fundamentally, it is not the same virus. Yeah, so tackling it, treating it, or even the way it enters your body is completely different. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. we, we know we know it's not the common flu, just like how because it's part of this coronavirus family, right? Again, I have to I just correct you there. When you say common flu, right? People yeah. normally think normally think common flu is when they get a runny nose and a sore throat, mm. right? And that's usually caused by certain viruses like rhinovirus or adenovirus, right? Okay. Not influenza virus. Okay. Okay. So, so the flu virus is actually influenza virus. When doctors talk about flu virus, it's okay. influenza virus. When we right. talk about a flu-like illness, any disease can sometimes cause a flu-like illness. You can get cancers that can present with a flu-like illness to begin with, yeah? Mm. Uh, so, but we definitely can look under a microscope and identify that this virus that is spreading right now is part of the coronavirus family. One of many, just like how, just like H H1N1 was also a coronavirus, right? No, H1N1 is a flu. But, oh, it's the flu virus. Yeah. Then what Spanish was... flu. Oh, okay. Um, pig, uh, swine flu. Okay. It's a flu virus. It's I an see. influenza virus. That's okay. why H1N1 is a nomenclature is completely different. How you mm. name the virus, yeah? SARS Depending was on a coronavirus. SARS was a coronavirus. Yeah. It's okay. got that corona structure. Yeah. Or the MERS. 2003. Uh, the MERS yeah. was a type of coronavirus as well. Okay, okay. So, when this whole thing first started, um, there was a bit of mass hysteria, at least in Malaysia, because, you know, it, the, uh, there was a type of end times language sort of uh, being propelled in the media, right? So, a lot of people were, were, were very afraid. But time has passed now and there seems to be, I, and this might be one of the problems, there seems to be a disconnect 
in the message that we got from the media, from state officials, and what the people are seeing at the ground level, right? So now people sort of, they don't think COVID is dangerous because people are not mm-hmm. dying left, right, and center. That's what people, I think, mm-hmm. expected. People expected to see high fatalities. But day to day, like for example, for myself, I've yet to meet a person who's died of COVID, right? Okay. And so because of that, it, it, people, uh, I think, a lot of people use that as ammo to say that something doesn't add up. Something's not right. They told us this was dangerous, but it's not, right? Because no one okay. is dying. So what, what, what would be your responses to that? Okay. Um, look, uh, do you want me to answer? I can answer that question. Christian. Yeah, you can yeah go, go, for it, for it. go for it. Yeah. So here's the thing. Yeah, You have to be able to separate anecdotal experiential evidence. So your evidence that uh, oh, I haven't met anyone with uh, COVID, meaning that, you know, it can't be there. Plus, I haven't got COVID myself. Plus, I don't know anyone who's died of COVID, so it must not be that lethal. It's experiential. It's anecdotal. It's your experience. And this is where John Snow, the father of uh, epidemiology, uh, would be proud of me saying that epidemiological evidence is different. John, John Snow, Snow, he's the father of epidemiology. Back in England, there's a pub called the John <laughs> Game Snow. Of Thrones. Where there's a pipe, Isn't it a- <laughs> right? There's a pump. Yeah. There's a pump. Yeah. And, um, and uh, during cholera times, he actually figured out that it's because people were, you know, defecating in the, in the rivers and that yeah. was spreading down, um, passing this little unseeable. Back then, it was, you couldn't even visualize this bacteria, okay? Um, and he figured out that, you know, this is affecting the population as a whole and he pulled the pump off so it won't contaminate the, the water system anymore. Anyway, coming back to this fact, the difference between epidemiological evidence and anecdotal evidence or experiential evidence is, is massive, right? So I go to the hospital and I see someone coming in with a stroke um, who has a blockage. They come out without any paralysis, right? And then from that one encounter, I think, oh, wait a minute, maybe I don't have to do anything for these patients, right? And I keep treating a thousand people like that. And I find out actually, wait a minute, when I look at a thousand people, they actually do have uh, deficits and they live with disability and they live in a nursing home, you know? So when it comes to the virus, you have to look at the bigger picture, the epidemiological picture, right? And when you say there's a disconnect between what the media was saying and what you're experiencing, that's a good thing. Because when they initially did the modeling, right, it was without any calculation of lockdown. It was without any calculation of social distancing. It was without any calculation of, you know, quarantining people for an incubation period, right? Yeah, that's the thing. Because, so because, because some people also turn to the fact that, look, the projections were completely off. Uh, uh, the CDC's projections were off. WHO's projections were off. So you're saying that the reason why the projections were off is because it didn't factor in all the, the, the measures that were taken, correct? Correct. The initial projections didn't factor in the measures that were taken. Now, I think also you can look at countries like America, right, where it's a completely different experience, okay? The hospitals are, you know, they've got 100,000 plus people in hospital with COVID a single day, right? So there's a completely different experience there. And again, people comment based on their anecdotal experience, their personal experience, right? But in medicine and in public health, you cannot just use your personal experience to detect a signal. It must be a population-based approach, right? And when, when you look at the numbers, you know, we've got, what, um, uh, close to a million people already dead, right? Um, I've got the John Hopkins page right here. It's probably even more than that now. Uh, let's look at tracking. Um, um, uh, my medical journal is Google. Um, so, 
a good reference, I would say, is the John Hopkins University of Medicine coronavirus page. It's very good. It's got good um, references as to where they got their data from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Global Health, 1.5 uh, million deaths already, yeah. uh, 65 million confirmed cases, you know, 276,000 deaths in the US. Yeah. So just because you haven't met a person, there's 7 billion people in this world, right? Mm. Just because you haven't met a person that's died of COVID doesn't mean it's, it's not real. You know, it's like similar to the to the blue whale uh, analogy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so uh, Krishna, I'll just ask you, um, if if COVID's fatalities are low, right? If it, this is not definitely not like a Ebola, or or it's not like a Ebola type virus where like fifty percent of the people are infected die, then is this virus deadly? Why is it deadly? Yeah, that's an interesting one, you know, and I would redefine what we think about daily. Sure. Deadly. Good. When you think about a deadly virus, you think about things like Ebola, where oh, if I get it, I'm dead, right? That's over. Actually, viruses like Ebola are easier to, to contain specifically because of that. It's because when people get it, they immediately have sy- symptoms and sadly they die and cannot pass it on anymore. Coronavirus is especially dangerous because it does kill people. It does kill a very small amount of people but for most people, it does not. And they become just spreaders. So if you think about a really pernicious, deadly virus, if you think about a mad genius who wanted to kill effectively um, 10% or 1% of the population, in fact, which is a lot of people, this is how he would engineer it. He would engineer, he or she, anyone can be an evil genius, but <laughs> he would engineer it to be very mild. Mild to an extent that everyone's going to question its legitimacy, exactly like <laughs> it's happening now, <laughs> but reach the people it needs to reach that it can kill yeah. and kill those people. So it is deadly in that sense. You know, if, you, if I gave you two planets to live on, one where people were very aware of the fact that a virus was deadly and was very careful about it, although the virus is more deadly, like Ebola, 50%, I would feel safer living in that planet compared to a planet where there was a very low death rate virus, but nobody cared about it because it was so mild for the pop, the bulk of population. Because in planet B, the coronavirus one, if, if you went on a planet, you would get it. Because people, you know, no, no one's giving a two hoots about it. But if you went to planet A, the Ebola one, everyone's cautious, everyone's scared, everyone's taking precautions. The chances of you getting it are actually lower. Although if you get it, you're more likely to die, but chances of you getting it is much lower that would be actually a safer planet to live on, surprisingly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's why I re- redefine what deadly means. Deadly does not mean that the death rate is very high, but deadly means that the mechanism in which the virus spreads itself throughout the population is so ingeniously evil. <laughs> yeah. I would have to agree wholeheartedly with Christian there. And the other thing that people don't take into account is that, okay, if you do a thought experiment and you say, okay, like Christian says, this virus we know is very easily transmissible, right? If I have the virus, I give it to three people quite quickly. If I don't social distance and I don't wear a mask, right? I don't wash my hands. Those three people, if they behave like me, will, within 10 days, we would have given it to 29,000 people. And it's very hard to fathom because it's a, it's a, it's a binomial expansion, right? Uh, you know, so that to think that if I give it, if I started it without my responsibility to wash my hand wearing a mask, 29,000 people have it. You look at the prevalence of things like diabetes and obesity, it can be a death sentence for those people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So just because 
it's not lethal in a particular population group doesn't mean the fact that it's so easily spreadable and it's asymptomatic in a younger population especially means its reach is very far and it can get to the groups that it becomes very lethal very quickly right mm. now that's the virus itself there are lots of downstream effects so um if people aren't familiar with working in a hospital resources are limited right and if you infect enough of the population you will have enough people knocking on the door needing ventilators to survive when people need a ventilator it means they can't adequately oxygenate themselves there's no other treatment it's essentially last line last ditch kind of treatment right so if you clog up your ventilation for covid you now have a whole population who coming in with heart attacks strokes um other trauma disorders where they might not necessarily be have access to these ventilators anymore and they would die for otherwise normally treatable uh, conditions right mm-hmm. you know i have people coming in with strokes in my department some of them as young as 33 last time i was on there was a 33 year old girl who came in she needed a ventilator but if the hospital was plugged and she couldn't get a ventilator stroke care is timely the more we delay the more the brain dies right she might mm. not have access to, to that treatment and she would now be disabled for life as opposed to now she's back home uh, looking after three kids and completing her masters in uh, social health you know so mm-hmm. there is a lot of downstream effects that people don't see right and i just like to add another note to how you know insanely evil this virus is the, f- the we we've learned recently that your most infectious period when you are super spreader mm. is the first 2 to 3 days mm. and and that's which the, is before the, Yeah that that's when you're asymptomatic right? Mm. That's yeah before any symptoms emerge even if you're a young person and you do have symptoms they only emerge about 3 days after which is well you know well after you you can spread it to everyone and you're the most infectious. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, a lot of a lot of uh, people say that I mean when I do basic reading a lot of scientists say that covid is a, like really weird the word weird is uh, or odd or peculiar or interesting these words are used to describe covid actually maybe be, be, be beneficial um i actually i don't think we said i asked you this but actually what is covid as in as a virus some people might not even know what a virus is right so maybe actually be beneficial yeah. to explain that do you want to explain what a virus is christian <laughs> i'll yeah i'll make it as simple as possible yeah, and then simple. joshua can imbue it with the extra details a virus <laughs> is a microorganism okay so it's very tiny in fact it's the tiniest of microorganisms it's smaller than bacteria by a hundredfold because all that a virus is is maybe a protein kind of case or a lipid lipids are fats case that's all it is and then inside it is just a piece of dna or rna now just explain really simple what dna and rna is all living beings have dna and rna humans you know the thing that tells our bodies that our eye color is brown or red or blue and our hair is straight or curly that's your dna right uh, so it's a biological molecule actually and all that a virus is it's a it's a protein kind of shell with some dna inside what how a virus works is that it enters your body it binds to your cell and it injects its dna into sometimes it injects sometimes the whole virus goes in and but it releases its dna into your cell and then it uses your cells mechanisms your own cell because your cell has its own kind of um, machinery to make more cells or to make other proteins 
So the virus uses your cells machinery to make more of itself using its DNA or RNA. Um, so it's not, it's not even considered life actually. Many, well, many people... It's debatable, isn't it? Yeah, it's very debatable, but many people don't know if this is life because yeah, it has DNA and RNA. That's the only thing that makes it kind of living, mm-hmm. but it is unable to reproduce on without your cells machinery on its own. Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically uh, like a parasite, lah. Um, a, it's a parasite in a sense that it relies on other things to survive. Yes, mm-hmm. but a parasite is like a, you know official definition of parasite would mean something that that has its own machinery as well. Sure. So right. Even if it's even if it's sucking nutrients from you, it has a stomach to digest yeah, yeah. it. It has maybe a blood supply or whatever. Yeah. Virus has nothing of that. Sure. A you virus' can... singular purpose is to spread its DNA. Yeah. Damn. So you, you can say it, it behaves in a parasitic way, but it's yeah. not a parasite. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, just coming down to the fundamentals, that DNA and RNA, it's essentially the code. It is the code that encodes your body is made up of proteins everywhere, right? That's what makes up, you know, your cell structure and everything. Proteins, fats, the basic, right? And that that code is the code for the protein that, you know, in our bodies, the DNA is what expresses uh, our physical appearance and our phenotype, we call it. Mm. Um, but in, in a virus, that code carries what is required to make more little viral packets. And then that is then spread, yeah? Yes. So, so I had so, an interesting. Oh yeah, sorry. Go, go on. Sorry, I had an interesting chat with uh, you know I was talking to my cousin about whether aliens exist, and then maybe you're like, what if viruses are aliens? You know, they they exist for no other reason <laughs> than to spread itself. It has no other purpose than to spread itself, <laughs> and it looks like you know a rocket ship. The, you know the protein structure is it looks like a capsule, <laughs> and all it carries is a piece of DNA code. It's quite a scary thing, actually, if you think about it. Because but, its only purpose is to spread itself. That's all. But it's, super it's got fascinating. no sense of living. Super fascinating. Yeah, very because cool. Very, very cool. There are different viruses with different um, uh, methods of hijacking your own cells, right? Different strategies. Uh, corona- yes. Coronavirus is very simple. And we, we classify viruses based on what... Some, some, structure, some classification is based on what DNA material they carry, like an RNA virus or DNA virus. Or, does it carry... Sense or missense DNA? Does it have to be transcoded? You know, there's a lot of complexity there, right? Um, mm. Things like HIV is a retrovirus, and the insidious thing about it is it actually has carries the protein that can inject its own DNA code and hide it in your DNA, so it becomes part of yourself. Mm. Um, and throughout evolution, you we can see segments of our DNA that may have actually been due to some kind of retrovirus in the past. Um, right. You know, and so. Viruses are completely fascinating, and you know, it is it is um, kind of it, it sometimes baffles you. And the fact that we can actually see these things <laughs> is even more um, uh, interesting, right? So, um, be- besides yeah. besides the asymptomatic feature of COVID, is there anything else about COVID the virus that is peculiar? Yeah, I think the anosmic feature of COVID is very peculiar. Um, so in certain populations, as you know, uh, the way COVID attaches to um, uh, our epithelium in the respiratory tract, that's the cells that line the respiratory tract, is through a receptor called the ACE receptor. Um, and it's quite a prevalent receptor in the airways. And it's quite interesting. It In the cells of the um, respiratory 
uh, or, or your nose, essentially where the receptors are that can pick up different um, uh, sensations. And then we sort of analyze that as scent, right? Yep. Different molecules actually have to bind to these receptors. And then we perceive that as a sense of smell, right? So for example, if, if I was walking down a park and a dog has pooped, just a fresh piece of poop in the corner, yeah. to, for me to actually smell that, right? A little bit of poop molecule has to actually diffuse from that poop and actually goes into my nose. So theoretically, I am using my nose to touch a <laughs> small molecular component of that poop, right? Yeah, and that's also, and the, <laughs> that's also the reason right? why if your nose is blocked, you can't taste anything. La. Oh, well, no, no, no. Well, we'll get to that in a second. Okay. The, the COVID causes anosmia, but not the same as other post-viral anosmias, right? So we see anosmia quite a lot in neurology. In other viruses, the anosmia lasts, can sometimes last weeks to months. Anosmia, osmia, the ability to smell. Anosmia, the loss of smell, right? Um, so in COVID, it doesn't actually knock the, the smell cells. I'm going to keep this as basic <laughs> as possible, right? It actually... It actually the smell it actually, cells coined by Joshua Mahadevan. <laughs> it actually, it actually um, uh, knocks off the cells that support the smell cells okay. um, or the sustentacular cells. And those cells can regenerate quite quickly. So they die. But when they die off, they often produce stuff that's required for the proper function of these. It's actually the olfactory cells, olfactory uh, yep. cells, right? Um, so the anosmia is short-lived, right? There's a doctor in the UK who wrote a journal. She grinds a coffee every morning, right? And then one morning, she couldn't smell a coffee anymore. And then she started collating all the different things she couldn't smell and tried to predict when uh, she would be over... Uh, the, the anosmia and it kind of lasts a few lasts a week and then it comes back which is different to uh, anosmia that you get um, with other viruses yeah so that's a peculiar and interesting thing about the virus um, the other thing is the systemic inflammatory response that it can cause huh? meaning so this is where you, you get yeah, what um, is systemic inflammatory okay, response okay so uh, uh, so any insult to the body, right? Like, for example, if you get into what a massive car... What is an insult? Car, I'm giving you an example. Oh, you mean a really mean virus, is it? Yeah, mean virus. No, no. So, so, so for example, if you if you experience a huge car crash, right? And there's lots of trauma, you fracture a lot of bones and muscles. There's an inflammatory response. This response is what's due to the... Causes the healing of that area, right? Like, so, for example, if you cut yourself, right? You get swollen sometimes. You get a blood clot forming, right? Sure. So there are certain things that become um, uh, more prominent when you're in this inflammatory phase, right? This virus, right, can kick off uh, inflammatory response, not just where the virus is, but systemically. We call that systemic inflammatory response syndrome, right? When that happens, all these uh, cells and chemokines or chemicals or signals, right, go rampant around the body and you've got this ramped up uh, inflammation all over, right? And it causes the lungs to get inflamed. It can cause your blood to become sticky, right? And all these other, it can cause your kidneys to fail, right? So it can cause a multi-organ failure. That's the systemic response, inflammatory yeah, response. It's flu can cause it's basically, it as well. Sorry, yeah, sorry? It's basically your body trying to fight, you know, things from the outside, but the response is too strong yeah. that your body goes like insane trying to fight this off and mm. it, inadvertently starts damaging your own body. Yes. You know, your own organs and stuff like that. Correct. That's oh. probably a simpler way of putting it. <laughs> That's yeah. insane though. Yeah. Um, what, what do you guys think? And maybe we can go with Christian first on this. What do you guys think about, because this is something that I see or hear, uh, whether it's from people I know or also from like WhatsApp, WhatsApp messages, right? You'll have a quote from a particular... 
WhatsApp. You get a particular uh, a message from a doctor who says like, this is ridiculous, this is crazy. I've never seen such a response to something that's so benign and that, you know, people are overreacting or going or or just just basically going berserk for nothing. Um, and people use that as evidence uh, or as proof that the scientific community or the medical community is divided and that there, are peop- there, there seems to be uh, two schools of thought that COVID is legit in a way and not legit in a way. Or maybe at least the responses are not uh, are, 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 are debated. Lah. I, I know that's a little bit vague, but what, what, what do you guys think before we go into the, the measures? Uh, yeah, you? I mean, I do. Yeah, my experience has been. I can't speak too much into this stuff, but my experience has been that the massive cause of debates, especially among the medical community, has been in response to the virus. I, you know, if someone from the medical community or even a scientist was questioning, you know, you use the word legitimacy. I'm taking that to mean, you know, whether the virus exists and whether it's dangerous. If mm. someone is questioning that, then I would be very concerned about what they're saying. Oh, and I, I, I Google I, I them think, up. I, I think they all say that COVID exists, but I think the dangerous part is what is the bone of contention or at least what is presented. Lah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I personally have not experienced this, but I think if there is, you you must understand that, you know, just because we perceive things as a divide on WhatsApp and it seems like there is a very loud call here among the scientific community getting one message from one doctor, you know, in the whole scientific community shouldn't warrant you thinking that it's a split down the middle. You know, there's probably a few, I would call them bad apples to be honest, but there's probably a few bad apples who are willing to use this as a platform to gain fame and repute because they know that there are enough people in the world who want to hear this message. So Christian, and like, I'll give you a good example. Yeah, yeah, sure, uh, go ahead. Yeah, so in the early days of COVID when Anthony Fauci was, you know, he sort of became a, I think a global figurehead on getting the messages out there and people were going to him for finding out, you know, what's the virus about. Um, a colleague of his who had worked in his lab many, many years ago, who got kicked out of his lab, a woman, I can't remember her name, who has published lots of really dubious things about viruses, uh, started saying the opposite of whatever he was saying, Right. And if you Google her, you do, you'll immediately find out that she was she, she's a discredited scientist. She's been kicked out of labs. She's on the down end of her edu, of her academic journey. Uh, but because of what she was saying, she got so much fame. Netflix made a documentary about her. There was news coverage about her. There was so much incentive for her to continue propelling that message. And I think when you know people caught wind of that, and more people just started saying like, "Hey, look, you know, if I say these few things and I." kind of add fuel to this fire, there's so much in store for me to get. Um, yeah, so that's just my thoughts on it. Christian, uh, for a layperson like me, how would I go about figuring out what is the consensus in the scientific community? What, what, what would warrant or what would constitute a consensus? I mean, because you cannot go on the ground and speak to the scientific community, right? Chances are you don't know many scientists or you don't know many doctors. But if you did, go and speak to them and see what, you know, get, get on the ground and see what they feel about it. People you know. But if you, if you don't, for example, um, you know, I, I would say go back down to the state agencies that regulate these things and regulate messaging like, 
you know, in the US, the CDC has been quite a strong communicator about the virus and stuff like that. Uh, in Malaysia, we have the KKM, which has been also a very, uh, very, who's been very good at communicating clearly what's going on and why this is important. And so if you don't know whether this is real or not, unfortunately, you've got to trust that the people who are in charge of regulating the whole system and making sure the system is moving in a direction, you've got to trust that they know why they need to do it. And they represent the scientific community, really. Right. Josh, They've been put in so, charge of it. Josh, what do you look, think? Look, I think, um, I think it's important not to conflate uh, opinion with fact, right? So as, as a doctor, I have opinions, um, like anyone else, right? Um, but I rely, for my practice, on vetted um, information, vetted fact, yeah? These are things that, you know, Johns Hopkins uh, University guidelines, CDC guidelines, um, the uh, KKM, you know, these groups, WHO, right? They're not just one person, you know. These are independent groups of independent scientists and clinicians and epidemiologists. It's a team of people, right, looking at the same problem, right, and coming to a similar conclusion, you know. This is not something that is, uh, that is um, there are aspects that can be still debated. There are aspects that are still unknown, but they talk about that. It's not like they don't acknowledge that, right? But some of the basics of the virus is already quite well known. And um, that's where you get your information, right? Scientific consensus, you will always find people with an opposing view or a different view or uh, with one publication that maybe suggests, doesn't prove the opposite, you know, uh, but this is where the consensus is important, right? Scientific experiments need to be replicatable, you know, they need to be uh, refutable for it to be a good hypothesis, you know? So these are things that takes years for scientists to, to, to study and analyze, right? Look, I analyze papers uh, on a Friday journal club all the time, every week, right? And it's really hard. It's <laughs> well, really hard. A Friday journal club. Yeah, we do a general club every Friday morning at 8.30. So jo I present, <laughs> so we present papers from all around the world, right? You're yeah. such a nerd. I can't even take it. <laughs> no, but this is part of the job. This is what I'm saying. This is part of the job. You know, we have to do this as part of the job, right? So I present papers to the faculty, other neurologists, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. they present papers to me and we do this every Friday and we learn more about the science. But yeah. whenever you see a different set of eyes looking at the paper and the data and how they approach their uh, study and how they recruited people, you get a different perspective, right? And you understand more about how the research was done. It's yeah. not just one person, right? Yeah. And you get a view of people who pick up the information that will fit their cognitive uh, perception of the world, right? So it's very easy for me. If I have a fixed thing I want to prove, I can go and look for the evidence that kind of proves what I want to say, right? But skim over actually how the evidence was, was, was uncovered, right? Yeah. So doing research, I think the important thing is when people say, do your own research and you will find out, right? Mm. It's not the same. Googling something and finding an opinion piece in the Times about a paper is completely different to actually reading the paper and then reading the papers that that paper references to see whether the, the method was accurate, looking at the people that were sampled, looking at how the stats was done, mm. looking at, you know, what was actually uncovered, right? Yeah, I and get... A lot of people, I, I lot get, people have this... Yeah, sorry, continue, continue. A lot of people have this understanding that, you know, science is definite, you know, it, uh, you get a theory and the theory is like proof, right? But it's not. When you do an experiment, right, what comes out is actually 
you've got two groups. Let's say you measure a difference between two groups. You measure that difference, right? The difference is X, right? And all the paper tells you is that I got to measure this difference, right? I got to see this difference and it wasn't due to just chance. Right? Yeah, yeah. So for even, even for me, I have an experience where I think uh, someone basically sent an article to me and I shared it with uh, uh, Josh's sister, Joanna, right? And so, uh, because we talk about this a lot and what she did was she went to uni. She, that, that, that I think, article was referring to a journal. She printed that journal, which only she could access. Like, I wouldn't be able to access that journal. She printed it out. She highlighted the relevant parts. She read through the whole thing. And she told me, like, this whole thing is super dubious. Even the report yeah. itself is inconclusive. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, I, I know the paper you're talking about, mm. actually, and I have it opened up here. Because this, this is an ex excellent example mm. that we can, we can do live in the podcast. Sure, okay? go for it. <laughs> so the title of the paper is Effectiveness of Adding a Mass Recommendation to Other Public Health Measures to Prevent SARS-CoV-2 Infection in Danish Mask Wearers. All right? So their conclusion was, recommendation to wear surgical masks to supplement other health measures did not reduce SARS-CoV-2 infection rate among wearers by more than 50% in a community with modest infection rates. Some degree of social distancing, uncommon general mask use, blah, blah. So a lot of people use this paper and said like, look, this Danish study found <laughs> that, uh, that masks don't work. You don't, and that was a conclusion, you don't have although to the wear... paper didn't conclude that. Yeah, yeah the, the paper, paper did didn't not conclude, conclude that. that. <laughs> the, the paper's conclusion is worth looking into, mm. but the paper didn't conclude that masks are not effective. What the paper is concluding is when you already have social distancing, um, you, you have some partial lockdowns, you have reduced working hours, reduced exposure, masks didn't add that much uh, more protection, right? That was the paper's conclusion. So if you wanted to accept that, then fine. At least it's not just saying masks don't work full stop. But if you look into the paper further, <laughs> you will find a lot of loopholes, a lot of things that assumptions they made. One really good example is that anybody who didn't, who could not take the test for whatever reason. Okay, so obviously all their samples, all the people who went through the study had to be tested at the end of it to see if they got the virus or not, right? So half of the people wore masks, half of the people didn't wear masks and they all went out into the world. That was the study. <laughs> at the end, take the test. All the people who couldn't take the test for whatever reason was counted as a negative result. Right. Why, why, why would you do that? Right? What makes you assume that if they couldn't take the test, they must be okay. Lah. That means they're not negative. They're not, they don't have COVID. Lah. That is very, very sketchy. And that's not what a scientist would do. Mm -hmm. uh, and this looks to me like a paper that was rushed. It was done really quickly. The time given for the people to go out and get exposed was a matter of weeks. So it was a paper that they wanted to get out, you know, in a month or whatever. Mm. So mm. that's what that's what scientists would normally do when they go through a paper. They see, you know, the approach you've got to take is when you read the title, the first thing that must come to mind is, let me try to disprove this. Let me try to question this yes, legitimacy, because, the legitimacy of this paper. Because a good scientific hypothesis must be able to be disproved, mm. right? And then we keep following that hypothesis until it's disproved, in which case the scientific method would dictate we have to be able to pivot and start looking at the new data. That's how we move forward. A constant uh, uh, trial of disproving what we thought was fact. 
trying to disprove it. Can I disprove it? Can I disprove it? Can I disprove it? Right? That's what sets apart um, uh, scientific method from faith, for example. You know, it's a method where you got to be able to disprove um, your hypothesis. You know, that's a good hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. So the approach that scientists make is when you're writing a paper, you're not trying to make a point. You're not trying to tell people I'm right. Yes. You're trying to put your data together and saying this is what the data is likely suggesting. Yes. Now someone else look at it, try to repeat it, and see if you're getting the same results or yeah. not. Yeah. Can we can we do this so meticulously to the point that there is no way that we can doubt this any longer? Correct. And Correct. then we can call it fact. That is consensus. That, that, then you get to consensus. Uh, yeah. It's all little baby up, steps. This this trial maybe has a, one little bit of signal that is worth looking into further. Not this trial now is is um, practice changing, you know. That's that's how science works. Right. And so another in, another yeah. Sorry, go on, go on. No, no, yeah, no. Keep another. Uh, another issue is of course testing. So a lot of people who are, I don't know whether the word is anti-COVID or what, but the the ones who think that, uh, uh that things are not proportionate, or that um. They are very skeptical uh, of this whole situation. They would turn to the testing, and they would say, "Like, look, um, we are saying that the numbers are so high. We we say that the growth is uh, that, 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 that it's so exponential. That we're worried about the exponential growth. But how would we know that when the when the te- how do how can we trust the numbers when the testing itself seems to be so flimsy? Like antigen tests, PCR tests, like even PC, PCR tests, it's nowhere near." Even eighty percent accurate, right? I might be wrong here, so maybe one of you or can take us to the testing methods, and then we can talk about how effective the tests are and how that relates to the numbers. Yeah, I actually did some reading about this um, just to get the the, the right numbers because even I didn't have a accurate sense of what the numbers are. Right now, just to just to push back a bit on what you said earlier, now. P- the PCR test, the PCR test, okay, think of it this way, right? How do we know when you have a virus in your body? You know, previously, you know, maybe you'd infer it from some symptoms that you have. Correct. Or you have this, 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 these symptoms, therefore you must have the virus. But that is an inferred conclusion. The only way we can really know that you definitely 100% cow cow have the virus inside your body is a PCR test. And if we cannot agree on that, any other tests have no benchmark, have no comparison. Correct. There's no gold standard. You get what standard. I'm saying here? It's uh, okay. There's no gold standard. Wait, wait. It's like uh, me, okay. Wait, wait. It, Maybe we need to like first just lay out what is a PCR test and how it works. Okay, okay. So PCR is a is actually a, a tool used in labs to replicate DNA, any piece of DNA, from a sample, by a lot, a million fold maybe. Right, and what that's that, that what that does is even if you have small amounts of a specific sequence of DNA in a sample, the sample could be from your blood, from your tissue or whatever. Even if you have small amounts of a specific sequence of DNA, in this case, it's the sequence of DNA from the virus. Even if you have small amounts of it, the PCR would replicate that DNA a millionfold in a test tube, and then we can detect the virus. Okay. Compare that. Com- that yeah, yeah. That, that's great. But compare that to an antigen test. So, 
the PCR test is the only way. And that's the point I want to kind of drive home. The PCR test is really the only way we can definitively say that you have the virus inside of you. Okay. Okay? Any other, other test, the accuracy, right, calculation is based on the PCR result. So you, you, you should not question this should, because mm-hmm. it, it throws the whole thing out of whack. Right. And honestly, after doing a million PCRs, the error is, I would like to say 100%, but I cannot. It's, it's very, very accurate. You know, and the protocol in labs today is that when you do a PCR one once and the test is positive, you do it a second time. So even if there is a margin of error of maybe 5%, making the accuracy 95%, if you do it a second time, those two times of 95% chance accuracy makes it almost 100%. It's 99.99 something percent accurate. So the PCR is the gold standard. There's no questioning that. The antigen or antibody test. Now, what is that? The antigen test is a test to see, you know, Josh spoke to you about the proteins that are found, the spike proteins that are found on the, around the coronavirus, yep. right? That crown shape that we all know about. Those are formed by the antigens. It's, a, it's like a cap that the virus wears that is unique to the coronavirus, to COVID. Uh, so the antigen is a marker that your body uses to detect that there's something foreign here and it designs... Uh, cells to attack it based on that antigen specifically. So if, if you know, we can de- design tests that pick up that antigen as well. But what it is basically is we're picking up the structure of the virus. Uh, you know, sometimes you'll pick up remnants of the virus as well. That could not be just, it, it may not just be the virus on its own. So the antigen test is kind of an inferred test. It's indirect measure. And so is the antibody. When you get a virus, you get antibodies to fight it. And so the antibody test is a measure of those antibodies. So these two tests are kind of like measuring the effects of having a virus. Whereas the PCR test is a measure of the virus itself. Right. And that is the dif- that's the main difference. So the antigen and antibody test, those are the ones that vary in its accuracy. Uh, right? with, with the PCR test, is there a difference in its... Um um, in how uh, accurate it is, it is uh, or if there are um, errors, right? Is there a difference between like false positives and false negatives? Or is no, you th- there is no conversation around false positives and negatives for PCR mm-hmm. because false positives and false negative rates are are calculated based on PCR results. Okay, do you understand so far? So, if I want to know if the antigen test has a high false positive rate. I need to know whether the person actually had the virus or not. Okay. To know whether the person actually had the virus or not, I do a PCR test. So then, but so, but even from my, I don't know, then because from what I've read, there is potential false positives and negatives from PCR tests. But the way you're describing is like, there's no way there can be a false positive or false negative from a PCR test. Yeah. So the only way you can get a false positive from the PCR test is something called cycle threshold. Which is, the PCR is doing its job. It's picking up the virus. But sometimes, you know, I told you, PCR amplifies the DNA a million fold. Right. So even if you have really trace amounts, you know, the virus sheds itself and when, it, when you've already been exposed and you're at the end of the cycle of the virus infection, mm. your body has defeated it, some virus particles may still be floating around your cells. Okay. You know, some of its DNA may still be floating around in very small amounts. 
PCR can even detect that. Now, is that a positive or not? People are saying, no, actually, that's not a positive. That is an oversensitivity of the test. Mm-hmm. Right. It shouldn't be so sensitive. And that's what that New York Times article was talking about that um, you mentioned on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. The New York Times article was not questioning whether the test was bad. It was saying maybe the test is too, too good. sensitive. <laughs> it's too good. Yeah. It's picking As up it, it could be, minute parts. Yeah. So someone could that, have just inhaled the debris of the virus as opposed to actually have the full virus. And then when yeah. they did the swab, you're picking up a debris and that because it's so sensitive and so specific, um, you're, you're detecting it. And whether that means yeah. biological active virus in the person um, is the question that the New York Times article raised. That person definitely had a fragment of, uh, of, uh, of um, the virus in their nostril, right? right. That's not yeah. the question, right? Yep. The question is, is the test so good that we're detecting even little fragments as opposed to just detecting virus that can be then spread and virus that can cause disease, right? Your body. So, so yeah. Josh, then the next question is, what would you say to the people who say, like, look, wouldn't that then inflate the numbers? Um, look, this is what I would say to those people. Firstly, coming back to the, the, the test thing, sure, sure, right? Sure. There's, each test has its place, yeah? We have, we have an armamentarium, armamentarium of tests that can help us figure out the disease profile in a particular person. So the PCR test is good to make to see whether the person actually carries the virus. The antibody can help us tell whether the exposure has been a certain time in the past, right? Because your antibody response comes after a latent period when the virus has re-replicated, yeah? That's how your body works in generating an immune response, yeah? The antigen is actually what, how I remember it is antibody generator, yeah? So it's a part of the virus that can then generate an antibody response, yeah? So that's kind of this basic immunology there. Um, when it comes to conflating the numbers, yeah, I think when it comes to a pandemic, we want to be more sensitive than reduction in sensitivity yeah, for a particular uh, screening test. Yeah? So we want to be able to screen people and make sure we're not missing a false, we're not getting false positives. Right. Yeah? We want to make, sorry, we want to make sure we're not getting false negatives yeah? so that we're not missing cases. Yeah? So the it, in a population-based setting, it's better to actually overestimate uh, than underestimate. Because if you underestimate, the um, prevalence of the disease can be very much higher and then you cannot institute protection to protect your population, right? You always have to go with the principle of protecting the most amount of people when you come up with public health um, um, guidelines, yeah? And again, this is an example of science doing the right thing. It's trying to tie in Again, it's a new virus. These tests we're experiencing uh, for the first time. And it's, deci- it's trying to figure out, the science is trying to figure out, should we reduce the sensitivity a little bit to help us come up with more um, uh, realistic guidelines? Yeah? Mm-mm-mm. So this is the process of the scientists trying to go through the data. And that's mm-hmm. how science works. And that's, we should be uh, commending that effort mm-hmm. and not trying to use it uh, to try and fit some kind of narrative that doesn't fit with existence. These scientists would have thought, um, you know, this test is perfect. But again, they're questioning that themselves to make sure that they can come up with a more perfect test. Right. You see, that's more clinically meaningful. So that yeah. that uh, that uh, slight increase in the prevalence of the disease is, in a pandemic sense, not the worst thing. Right. So this so-called trace um, um, viral yeah, particles. Viral particles. Um, 
do we know how much of an impact it could have made on the numbers uh, that that are recorded now? Is there any way of knowing? I don't think there'll be a clear way of knowing that. The the thing is, like everyone only set a cycle threshold quite recently, mm-hmm. and they set it at twenty five. I think uh, cycle threshold basically means you know the PCR goes through. Every cycle, it replicates all the DNA. And then the second cycle replicates all of those DNA. Right. So it's this, you know, it's this infinite replication of DNA. So they said, okay, maybe 25 cycles of replication is sufficient. Mm-hmm. But they've just said that. Before this, they were, you know, every country would have used the standard cycles that they used to test for viruses. Right. PCR is not a new way of looking for viruses. It has been how viruses have been tested since PCR was invented. In, I think, the 70s. Uh, Josh, do you know when PCR came about? Oh, I don't know exactly. But, you know, it, it was yeah, it's novel. Maybe, maybe it, was, it was incredible when it came out. Like, it allowed yeah, us it to was, do a the lot guy of... Who, um, cut yeah. down a lot of The guy time. who invented it... The guy who invented it won a Nobel Prize very quickly. Mm. Uh, one of the fastest Nobel Prize winners because it was so revolutionary to he, science. He was a surfer, wasn't he? And then he went to uh, Hawaii <laughs> and then he noticed that in the lava um, flows... This um, um, uh, polymer enzyme. There's an enzyme that must allow the life to survive there that can uh, survive in higher temperatures. And so they use that enzyme in the reaction. It's, oh, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. It's a very cool process. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really, really interesting. But guys, I, I guess I do see the concern uh, among uh, particular groups in that look, we know it's not that fatal. We know that the. We, so the only problem with COVID, so to speak, is that. The, the the way it spreads it's so quick right but we how are we to actually measure because if we were to so just, imp- just before you continue that I just want to say something you, we know it's not very fatal in certain groups of the population in certain sure. groups of the population it's extremely lethal okay yeah? the aged people with comorbidities and that includes a wide proportion of Malaysians because diabetes and hypertension is very prevalent yeah sure so in in some in some proportions is actually quite dangerous okay? and that's and a this fact is just right the, and that's a fact. And this is just the, uh, the, the day-to-day effects of just the post-viral phase. We don't know in 10, 15 years, could there be a, a long-standing chronic, these sort of uh, 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 long um, uh, COVIDers, you know, they carry the virus, they've got fatigue, they've got brain fog, they've got lots of things, you know. So there, there are long-standing effects that we're still not sure about. So, you know, for me, I'd rather avoid it mm. uh, for that reason. And we have a story about this sure. uh, that's not very old. I mean, you remember when you were exposed to someone who had COVID, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I remember you calling me and it, you know, there was genuine fear because you live with our parents. Yeah, yeah. And our mom ha- is asthmatic. Yeah. She's diabetic. And we knew that she's super, pr- uh, you know, she's in the high risk group for sure, no doubt. You know, right. all of the... Every day, the DG reads out, the Director General of Health reads out um, all the patients who died and what symptoms they had, you know, what pre-existing conditions they had. That's everything that my mom has, our mom has, right? And so we know she's in a, if she gets it, she's in a high-risk group. And, you know, you ask why is this, is this virus very very deadly? It, It certainly is because, you know, you are healthy. You would have almost suffered no consequence from having this virus, but you live with our parents whom you may have killed if you brought COVID home. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, that, and that is reality. And that was a fear that you and I both spoke about. You know, we were both afraid yeah. 
that should you have had COVID, you may have very likely passed it on to our parents. And, you know, we went through the the really stressful process of trying to track all your movements to see if, you know, are there any surfaces that you would have touched in that one day of exposure when our parents could have also been there, could have touched, you know, were, were you in contact with them? And I remember that experience very clearly. Yeah. And it was a strong reminder for me. No, that's the thing of how dangerous that's, that's, this that's is. That's why I feel it's a bit weird when people like uh, question why I brought Alif on. Like I'm somehow like team team no, team Alif I'm, because the the truth the, the truth is, uh, I I I have no stake in the game. I I actually you know really recognize that COVID is dangerous, and they like well, like what Christian said. Like when uh, my firm uh, two people had COVID, I took it seriously. In fact, I left the house and I quarantined in an apartment for two weeks by myself. Yeah, we came up with a yeah, we came up with a mitigation strategy to reduce your contact. Yeah. We arranged a new place for you to stay. You know, we did everything that we could because it was scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was frightening. Yeah, and the thought if uh, if I had infected my mom or even my dad and that had somehow uh, would cause to them being harmed, of you know, of, of course I would not want that, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, sorry, Josh, I wanted Look, to say something. Yeah, look, I, I don't think, um, I think uh, bringing uh, different points of views or opinions uh, to your show is very important. And again, that's commendable. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't conflate fact and opinion. For yeah? sure. Because for they're sure. not the same thing. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. So again, okay, so just coming to back to this thing. So like when we implement measures, like when policymakers are impl implementing measures, um, the problem with having an overestimation of the numbers is that even though it's safer, we might uh, overreact or overdo it with the policies. Do you guys think that is true? Or or, um, or, I, or is it because with a virus, that it's peculiar in that when things go out of hand, there's no way of pulling it back? Uh, I think there are several ways of looking at this. Um, look, no public health policy, you have to really compare compare the population and the information that you had about your population when you come up with this kind of policies. Right? So you can't really say one lockdown is the same as the other lockdown. Yeah. Mm -mm. Um, so just using the word lockdown and it's draconian isn't the same because lockdowns are completely different. And just look, saying, look, um, lockdown was occurring in the UK, but look, they never contained the virus. Again, it's a very um, um, uh, non-scientific way of looking at the lockdown because it's very, very different how it was handled, what the prevalence of the virus was in the first place. Were we underestimating the prevalence? And the problem was we were actually underestimating the prevalence of the virus in places like UK, Italy, and US that led it to go astray. So again, the overestimation, um, uh, I think, was helpful, right? And, you know, the potential damaging effects of a lockdown, they are real. They are real. There's no questioning that. And no one's questioning that, right? No one's questioning that... Uh, uh, political parties may have certain uh, agendas or ideologies or certain things that they like to push uh, during a, 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 a pandemic, like uh, opportunists, right? But, um, you know, I can speak from the experience here in Australia, okay? Uh, we instituted a lockdown very early. We instituted quite a hard movement restriction early in the piece. Whenever we had any outbreaks, we would lock down again. Uh, our way of life was changed in that Wearing a mask in a healthcare setting was kind of commonplace. Um, washing your hands became an important thing. Um, 
distancing 1.5 meters was normal. And then we had restrictions as to how many people can be indoors, how many people can have in your house, right? All that came. Um, and then we got, we had zero virus in community in Adelaide, at least for uh, close to nine months where life was almost back to normal. You know, people mm. became a bit more complacent right. during that time of lockdown. Flu virus went, our flu mortality rates dropped. Every single infectious disease um, uh, that was easily transmissible, airborne or touch, right? Formites or whatever you want to call it, went down, dropped. Uh, Melbourne, there was a breach from uh, quarantine and their numbers went up and they went into stage four lockdown for 109 days. Now they've gone 36 days without any single virus because they locked down early and their economic numbers are improving. Yeah. So if you look at a society that um, takes the scientific information and says, look, we've got to wash our hands. We've got to stay 1.5 meters apart and we all got to wear a mask, right? And everyone in the society would be compliant because they know they're doing it as their civic duty. Then you don't need to police it. You don't need to institute harder lockdowns because you can expect all your citizens are going to trace their movements so that when the contact tracer calls them, they'll say, look, I was here, 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 and here, right? So, so that they can actually live more unrestricted lives, they have to, we have to give up some of our liberties, mm-hmm. right? In the short term. This is yeah. not a long-term thing. Suspension. Right? Suspension. Correct. Mm. And it allows us to restart the economy much quicker. So this dichotomy that you have to choose the virus versus the economy is a false one. In fact, mm. choosing prevention of the virus early, if you can get it early, um, is actually advantageous for your economy, right? Yeah. Um, so the problem with public health is you can never win. As a public health physician, I'm not a public health physician, but I can, I've seen the criticism that people in Australia have faced, right? If right. you are doing too good and nobody gets the virus and less people die, the public will say, why the hell did you put me through the lockdown anyway? No one's mm-hmm. died. No one's got sick. <laughs> if you do too poorly, like in America, and people are dying, right? It's only the people who have economic loss, the people in positions of power and privilege who own businesses, not the workers, not the, they're not going to be exposed to COVID. They'll say, come on, go back to work. The people want to work. They got to work because, you know, uh, it, they can't be stri- stripped of their livelihoods, right? But these are the people who uh, actually don't have uh, their own private health cover. Their employer controls that, you know. They don't have access to healthcare. They are dying at a disproportionate rate in America, right? So it, it exposes the social chasms in society, you know, this pandemic. And a good government... We'll try and even it out. We'll try and contain things to, so that, you know, economic productivity can continue. When it goes out of hand, the public health person like Anthony Fauci will be held um, to task, you know? So it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a no-win situation. When you do super well, no one sees the virus. That's a great outcome for us. But everyone sees that as, oh, why, why did I have to go through all that? You know, like, look, nobody's died. I haven't seen anyone die, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think... For perspective, if you want to see how, what happens to the healthcare service in particular when a virus goes rampant and overwhelms your system, look at Italy in the early days, uh, Lombardy in particular. You can read articles in the New England Journal of Medicine um, mm. where the governing body of anesthetics had to come up with a decree saying people over the age of 65 don't get a ventilator because they had to remove that ethical choice from the clinician. As a clinician, I know the ventilator could possibly save this man's life but I only have one ventilator for three people. Who do I pick? Mm, mm. How do I value that life? And that was causing PTSD, depression, war-like situations for healthcare workers. Right, right, right. They had to work with COVID. Mm. Nobody sees that. And all the public has to do 
is stay 1.5 meters, wear a mask, even if you don't believe the virus exists, right? Mm. Enough people in your population believe the virus exists. That is the zeitgeist of the time. We should follow it. Mm. However, when you have people who are brazenly not doing it, then the lockdown has to be stricter and stricter and stricter. So it's like, uh, if you think, oh, my freedom to wear a mask is more valuable than the protection of someone or someone else's freedom to survive this pandemic, right? Then the government has to act in slightly more draconian fashion mm-hmm. because you're not uh, acting in a civic-minded way. Yeah. Since, so there's a lot of ethics to debate this. Since, since a lot we, of ethics. And different we, countries are different. Since we, we, we touched a little bit on the state, because I, I want to talk to you guys about the different measures and how effective they are. But just to touch on the state, uh, Josh, um, are you do, at the same time, are you ever concerned that ideologically or in general, I, I don't know about Australia, but just the idea that there's a risk of giving too much of power to the state, they might get a little bit too comfortable and might take advantage of of, uh, of the situation to kind of cement power or even, you know, you might... Like, for example, in Malaysia, right? A lot of people were saying that. I'm not saying that that's the case, but with the emergency, for example, that it wasn't about COVID, but it was a, a power play, right? I'm not saying that as a statement of fact. That's what people yeah, yeah. are saying. It's an opinion, Right. So, what what do you think about that? Do, are you concerned about that as well? Do you ever think about it? Um, look, I think uh, that's an ongoing concern. Outside of the pandemic, there's always a concern that governments aren't going to be acting in the interest of their populace. Sure. Right? So, they're not actually acting in their elected um, uh, capacity. What they were elected for is to represent people, but they're actually representing multinational corporations and other things, right? That is the erosion of capitalism into the government, Right? That is a completely different uh, debate. But yes, we have to be cautious. And if the action of the government is outside of what the public health specialists, the CDC, the World Health Organization is recommending, then fair enough. If, it's, mm. if they're acting in a completely, um, in a manner that isn't uh, the acceptable manner, manner all around the world, where we also have evidence of countries coming to terms with the virus and controlling it in a, in a, in a, in a good fashion and in a, in a livable fashion, you know, kind of a give and take, right? So, yes, there's that risk, but I'm not seeing it being um, uh, the pandemic itself being utilized in a way that's uh, overstepping the power of the government at this point. So, um, the risk is acknowledged. We should be wary of it. The moment the government starts doing things in the name of a pandemic that is out of all of our controls, but in the name of the pandemic um, that uh, isn't in the scientific interest or isn't aligned with the scientific advice, then, you know, we can, we can um, be a little bit more um, uh, boisterous about our views, you know? Yeah, but sure. you've got to tackle each case individually. You know, um, in Malaysia in particular, uh, you, you talk about the rights of the people. I mean, there's a big populace in Malaysia whose rights aren't the same as another portion of the, of the population, but we're not outraged by that. Yeah, yeah. Christian, any thoughts? Um, I think, you know, just to pick it up from, from talking about Malaysia in specific, I think as a public, our bearings of where our rights and the state's control over us, our bearing of where that is, you know, in kind of our understanding of who we are as a community is quite good, actually. Because, you know, in all matters relating to the pandemic, I think Malaysians have been extremely compliant uh, you know, it's frustrating lots of people's lives. Um, 
you know people have gone out of jobs you've seen you know lots of problems but the general consensus has still been that this is something we need to get through together mm-hmm. uh this is an important thing that we need to overcome uh you know the people who are going through google and trying to look for information to counter that i think i think that's been a minority so you know it's good that we have people like that because it's it's always nice and important to have people on the opposite and whether they're right or wrong but to just to just always keep us in check i guess to always make sure that you know when you're going through the information whether everything is accurate uh, i must say you know when i heard alif's podcast it it intrigued me and it triggered me to do a lot of my own reading and i think that's the positive outcome of of hearing someone with different opinions but in a general sense i think malaysians have been have been quite compliant and when there was a there was that one incident instance when i think the government was stepping a bit too far with the emergency kind of declarations malaysians rightfully were upset by it and there was a lot of public outcry and that's why i think we are quite aligned to what is stepping too far yeah and when there is a step too far we do take action in a safe way actually i you know with the emergency i think people were voicing out a lot but i don't know if there were any public protests yeah, people there, were there getting ready right? for it lah if it was actually declared i think people would have yeah. protested yeah that's right but i think there was enough pressure that even the king picked up on that on that pressure and he kind of understood what the people felt and ultimately it was him that shut down the whole thing right um i think that's a very healthy way to do, to go about it I, and i i would also like to say lah if for me i'm very concerned about this but i my thing is if you think that you're worried that the state might encroach your liberties then a good way to deal with that is to just make sure that you have a healthy judiciary and a healthy uh, legislative to check your 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 government so if you yeah. have a, a a good opposition in your leg- legislative body then that's good and you just have to make sure that a parliament is convening whether it's physically or even online yeah but as long as parliament is convening there is a check right so yeah I, I, that, that that's my two cents as well um mm. but what we're certainly experiencing now which is new is that as we said earlier you know we're kind of experiencing science unfold in first hand right and so policies rightfully should should adapt yeah. to the new findings yeah. that we have you know just yesterday the us announced that you can reduce self quarantine period if you've been exposed to 7 to 10 days mm-hmm. uh, that's although 14 days is the is to, the best that you could do have, but they've brought it down yeah i have to say that's in an attempt to improve the compliance mm-hmm. as well yeah mm-hmm. yeah so yeah. Uh, you know 14 days would be ideal because yeah. we know some people test positive at day 13 <laughs> Um, but <laughs> it means that if everyone if more people are, are quarantining till day 10 the chance of people coming out will be with the virus is less than no people quarantining until day 10 you see mm. so it's one of those like yeah. bargaining kind of strategies yeah and then we're also you know because we learned now that the virus is most infectious in the first two days you're going to i think you're rightfully going to see policies rolling out for mass testing on a frequent basis like a screening kind of mm. a, a screening kind of concept where people are just going to be regularly tested with those quick tests you know they are not overly sensitive but at least you know people are going through some kind of testing regularly because you know you're going to be asymptomatic the first two days and we can't contact trace everyone yeah. and so the way forward might be you know barring a vaccine the way forward might be that we regularly screen the population for 
the virus yeah. in a quick test. Yeah. I guess there's that a be- I guess there's a false inference lah where we have developing uh, information and then people take it to be because there's developing information that means everything that was said before that was wrong or false and and, and I yeah. guess that 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 causes the uh, misinformation so to speak lah. Yeah. I think people who haven't been engaged in health or science they they don't realize that we often when new evidence is presented we have to look at it objectively and then we have to learn to say look my previous practice needs to be modified mm-hmm. there's always modification of how we practice based on the science that is that is coming up and and you know? and that doesn't affect the credibility or the integrity of the earlier assumption because no, it was no, because made we, yeah sorry sorry yeah exactly you say because it was made uh, with the best of our scientific ability at the time Mm-hmm. You know, like at one point we thought the Earth was flat. <laughs> yeah, right. And that was the accepted view. You mean it's that not flat? Are you sure? But that moves forward. Uh, uh, I've, I've, can I just I've say, Josh? Good YouTube videos that say otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's exactly. making a comeback. I must <laughs> say, it's it's you know, been so, all over so my news. Matter of fact, matter of fact, uh, bits of knowledge. You know, if I'm a skeptic, I can be skeptical about everything yeah. except my own opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I don't apply the same level of skepticism towards the evidence that I use to generate my opinion. <laughs> no, I I've had that, you know, I've had uh one encounter uh where uh, this person was uh, sort of decrying uh, uh MCO, right? Uh, the, the the lockdown. And so then um they were, no, they were talking about uh doing another lockdown, right? So then uh, this person was like, ah, I knew it. They're going to continue controlling us. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. I knew that this was a ploy from the beginning. Then I said, you know, just wait lah. And in fact, the government at the time decided not to put in an MCO. So then I said, hey, look, the government like agreed with you and they didn't put in an MCO. They didn't put in a lockdown. Then he was like, no, they're just, uh, uh, they're just uh, uh, playing with everyone's sentiments, getting them afraid for the next, what they're going to do next. So like either way, you're going to reach your conclusion lah. There's no loss, yeah. yeah. Especially when you base it off um, uh, non-fact. You yeah. Know, you base it off a, base it off a false fact or a false kind of a fallacy, essentially. Mm. So okay, what do you guys think about uh, face masks and social distancing? Factually, because even with face masks, there's a lot of debate on its effectiveness, mm. right? There's a lot of uh, even the way it was, how COVID spread, right? I think it was whether it was droplets or whether it was. You know these different variations, right? Yeah, initially there was a there was a you know the understanding was you know it's on surfaces, so everyone wiped down everything. You see, you know, you saw pictures of New York being wiped down. I have a funny photo of the Sabah Parks team that I work with work with uh, hiking up Mount Kinabalu to spray it down, <laughs> and they had a COVID COVID positive patient <laughs> hike the mountain. They were literally in their hazmat suits on the peak of Kinabalu spraying it down. <laughs> that would have been a great sight. <laughs> no, they should put that picture on National Geographic. I don't know why. It's an amazing photo. <laughs> it really is telling of our times. I wanted to frame it up because it's so brilliant. <laughs> um, look, we we have to use these measures um, together. I think, okay, first coming back to the shift in points of views about the mask, right? That is science happening right in front of you, right? Mm. Initially, we thought um, it was only on surfaces, fomite spread, right? Another thought was that it was droplets. Droplets come out when you sneeze and then it drops to the ground and that's it, right? Another thought then was it's probably aerosolized. So if I cough or breathe or talk really loud, right? It's going to hang around in this room for a while 
in an aerosolized form and when someone comes in, they're going to pick it up and go, right? So these are thoughts as to how the virus was spread. I think um, there's still elements of, it's possibly leaning towards more aerosolization. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why when people spend lots of time in closed groups, without much distancing, the virus seems to spread in these sort of super spreader sort of events. Yeah. Um, using a mask will help to a certain degree, right? There's, there's no doubt it will help, especially if you can't distance yourself to one, one and a half meters, right? If you're in a situation where you can't distance, I'd say use a mask. Always wash your hands. Wash your hands even before, anytime you touch your face. You know, the mask not only acts as a deterrent for aerosolizing, it also acts as a deterrent for you to touch something and then touch your face, right? Right, right. So, you know, and always touch this part of the mask when you take it off. Don't touch this part of the mask, right? <laughs> take it off like that, right? Clean your hands you can't before you touch you your face. It. <laughs> Clean your hands as you put the mask on. Clean your hands again. You're going to have hand rash, okay? You need to have hand rash <laughs> to know that you've been cleaning your hands. These things work. How do you know it work? Even if you, okay, you don't believe COVID exists, right? You don't believe COVID exists. Let's say you, let's say you assume COVID doesn't exist, right? You yeah. believe in the flu, right? Sure. Flu exists? Yeah. yeah. Flu rates also drop mm-hmm. with these measures. So the measures work to prevent some kind of airborne transmission virus. Now, yeah. COVID actually exists. So, you know, it probably does work for COVID. Would you like your surgeon my, to perform my a surgery a... without his mask? Just talk, 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 <laughs> splatter into your wound, right? It works. There's airflow that kind of works in a, in a surgical theater that makes sure the air flows up to bottom and out so it never recirculates back onto the patient. Right? Yeah. This works. Yeah, sorry, you know? Christian, you were saying something? Very... My mom has a pretty good... Uh, yeah, my mom has a... Our mom has a pretty good observation. She works in a kindergarten that regularly gets, you know, every month or so, because they're all like, you know, three-year-olds and four-year-olds, one kid gets a sickness and, you know, he, you know it could be hand, foot, foot, mouth disease or fever or virus or anything, and it's spread. So every few months, they're dealing with a massive outbreak of some sickness for all their kids. Um, my mom said this whole year, there has been no such incident <laughs> of any of the usual viruses or sicknesses that the whole uh, group gets. And that's not because no one's coming to school. They're all coming to school. But, you know, kindergartens have been pretty strict about having the children sit separately. Children and teachers always wear masks and face shield and stuff like that. And so it's it's just general germ theory, I think. Yeah. Uh, okay, but with face masks, let, let me frame this differently, right? So some the, the problem, I think, for some people is that they feel like people are so militant about face masks, about wearing face masks. So this is what they'll say. You know, people are so mad if you don't wear a face mask. But if you actually read, it's not like face mask is 100% effective. It's not even 80% effective. It helps a little bit, you know, but it to the, the degree that people push you to wear a face mask, right? Yeah. So they, they paint it as people who, wear, who are, uh, advocate for wearing face masks have not, aside from doctors and scientists, but the general layperson doesn't even know what they're talking about. And so then there's like a lack of respect, right? So, do you guys have any thoughts on that? I don't. Do you think? Don't you think that this is a general observation from videos we see in the US? Mm, yeah. Or do you see this in Malaysia? I've not like, ever experienced people shouting at you for not wearing a mask in Malaysia. In fact, I've seen people being very politely telling others like, "Hey, you know, because in Malaysia they love wearing masks, but they always put it under their <laughs> nose, yeah, 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 yeah. under their mouth, <laughs> in the most pointless fashion possible." Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I've told people before. Yeah. I've told people, like gently reminded them, hey, 
where where your, where your mask properly like especially when you're in the building yeah yeah to be fair i think you're right even when i use the lift because a lot of lifts here have like a four four, four limit. limit so um yeah. the people you know there's always the fifth or sixth person who just comes in as well and the most i've seen yeah. is someone else like you know like one of his uncles hey dalam pat da like that that's about it lah <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> and i think that's a really good approach to it like you know we approach it as a bit of humor and a bit of like look i'm just looking out for you and yeah. I, i you know i have no malice intended mm. yeah um the 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 but there are groups there are dissenters and i've only seen this in the us of people shouting at each other for not wearing masks but i do not think that this is strictly uh an issue about masks i think the issue is conflated with civil liberties political lines civil liberties and civil yeah, liberties the moment and the, then it becomes a lot more the, the moment you wear a mask you are not a sovereign being anymore yeah <laughs> yeah and if you don't wear a mask you're a bigot you're selfish blah 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 yeah. you shouldn't have so worn a uniform things. to school or so <laughs> and you shouldn't have uh, made sure your hair was cut you know you yeah. there are lots of things that you know you shouldn't make sure your nails were cut all those things <laughs> that we impose or feel that is imposed on us right yeah. um sometimes has a public health benefit la yeah. so no but but christian is right so but there's also the adverse where if you don't wear a mask you're immediately painted as a bigot or as being insensitive there's a lot of i mean i i understand like it's a very charged situation so there are a lot of, there's a lot of emotional rhetoric which might not be too helpful either way la it could just be a simple yeah, yeah, it could be a simple just lack of information la right Yeah, yeah, I'm it. all for like sensible use of the measures. Like, yeah. you know, I love going for runs, one hour runs on my own. I don't wear a mask when I do a one hour run on my own because, you know, I'm around nobody. It's in the open air and there has, you know, Germany when even in the strictest of lockdowns, they said, look, everyone needs to exercise. So everyone's allowed one hour outside of exercise because mm. it's important you get your vitamin D, you get your uh, your sun and all that. So I think you know it's it's wise to be sensible about yes, it there's no yes. need to be ridiculous yeah but you have ridiculous uh views on either end of the spectrum mm. uh, just because those views yeah. exist doesn't mean you shouldn't do the reasonable thing so just just just, yeah. just lasting on the mass right what do you guys uh what what is your opinion on people who say that <laughs> wearing masks lead to oxygen uh, deprivation because categorically no i <laughs> Josh can you speak to this I, I because so, this this uh, is so a thing come to the, the so the only way the only way I can I can um, help with that is to actually unpack how the person came to that conclusion mm-hmm. because if I say no you know I don't think masks lead to oxygen deprivation yeah. right I would say it depends what mask you use if you use a completely sealed mask that doesn't allow any air in it'll use it'll cause air deprivation which in case in fact will cause you to die of asphyxiation, right? <laughs> so it depends what mask you put on. You want to play this game of like trying to push it to its nth degree, right? We can do that. But I really need to understand how you came to the conclusion that wearing a mask causes oxygen deprivation. How did you come to that conclusion in the first place? And if you can provide me with that information, because I know um, anecdotally, personally, plus um, hundreds of people in hospital, if you wear a mask, it doesn't actually limit the airflow in it just limits the droplets that can come in right so so is when you wear a mask are you so are you in fact inhaling carbon dioxide uh there might be a slightly higher percentage of carbon dioxide that you inhale maybe yeah, yeah. who knows yeah. but it's so the negligible. percentage that we learned in the percentage we learned in textbooks is uh, in the air there's about 
3% carbon dioxide, right Josh? Uh, how much carbon dioxide percentage is there? I, I, around 3%. Yeah, yeah, around 3%. You can Google it. I know oxygen is about 16%. Uh, carbon dioxide is about 3%. A lot of it is nitrogen uh, and hydrogen. Now, no, but because we, we, when you exhale, yeah, exhaling. when yep. you exhale, the percentage of carbon dioxide in that composition of air goes up by 0.03%. So it goes to 3.03%. So that's the increase of amount of carbon dioxide you're releasing out. If you think that an increase of 0.03% of carbon dioxide is going to make your organs fail, then you should never go to China <laughs> that has a really bad air quality index. Yeah. Because, you know, general composition of carbon dioxide is much higher so, there. So the, the point is that it's, there might be a trace amount of carbon dioxide increase if you're using a mask, but it's negligible, right? If you really want to increase the concentration of carbon dioxide, you have to breathe in through a bag and recycle the air over and over again. Um, mm -hmm. Breathe in through your nose, breathe out, and then slowly start breathing in through your mouth and out again. And then you can increase the carbon dioxide in your blood after like a good minute. It's one of the strategies to calm people down when they have... Um, when they start hyperventilating, it helps slow down their breathing a little bit and other things. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you can't just, yeah, a mask won't uh, increase the concentration of carbon dioxide and decrease the concentration of oxygen to the point where you will suffocate. Yeah. And this, oh, can I also yes. add that a good measure of whether your masks are good, because there's lots of different kinds of masks around, is masks actually supposed to be waterproof? Um, the, you know, the standard three-ply blue mask that we use if you pour water on the inside of it, it should not come out mm. the outside. Uh, and that's quite an interesting test that you can do. So you guys don't advocate for like a home DIY, like, you know, take a sock, cut it, and then like, you know, tie a string and use it? Um, I think three-layered three masks are the ones that, um, that have been shown to be most efficacious, but anything is better than nothing. Mm. So if it means that you yeah. think that your civil liberties are going to be uh, more respected if you use one layer instead of two, then, you know. <laughs> so I, I think I think social distancing is not that controversial. The, what's more controversial, and this is a big one, is the lockdown. Whether the lockdown was justified and a further lockdown will be justified. And I guess uh, Josh made the distinction in that different countries have different scenarios and they have different sets of information, right? Mm. But uh, generally... Uh, what what do you guys think about lockdowns? Uh, and Josh, and, wait, wait, and let me just frame this, uh. because I'm very concerned about lockdowns, because I also see, um, I see the negative impacts right to the economy, socially. I I see it with like uh, we're talking about the cases of views that have gone up, talking about depression. We're talking about all these things, right? So I see that with the lockdown. And I wonder whether there's a point of diminishing returns where the imposition of a lockdown, even though COVID is, causes all these negative effects, the other effects you get from imposing a lockdown outweighs it. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, look, I think that's a, a very um, uh, interesting uh, observation. Um, but here's the thing, okay? Let's, so... Not all lockdowns are the same, okay? I think I made this point earlier. If you act early to prevent the virus from spreading and you know where the virus is in your community, meaning your screening rates are really high, people are complying with that, and you have the ability to contact trace people very, very easily, as in people are happy to say, give up the QR code readers, whatever, right? So that there's an easy way of tracking and containing a virus. I think the ultimate strategy of suppressing the virus and knowing where the outbreaks are, locking down little areas, 
means shorter lockdown, quicker opening up, right? Mm-hmm. So in the long run, you are out of lockdown, quick, uh, lockdown quicker to mitigate the effects of long-term lockdown. The more you drag your feet and the more the virus becomes more prevalent in your community, it is much harder to trace, detect, contain, right? And then you will get to the point where your hospital systems become overwhelmed and then you have to impose some kind of mass lockdown until you can mitigate the downstream effects of an overwhelmed hospital system, right? And then it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. prophecy. Oh, I don't want to lock down because I cannot do this, the economy. Um, but there's always going to be this limiting factor of limited resources to deal with your cases, you know? So for me, uh, my response would be early, quick, short, sharp, sweet lockdown. Get ahead of all the cases. Know where the virus is short, in your... Short, sharp, sweet. Know where your viruses are in your community. Open up uh, with um, certain uh, clauses, you know? Um, and then as the viruses, as, as long as the screening rate is high, you can slowly open up. But, uh, right? uh, and then if you detect a virus... You know, the different methods of screening. You're screening the patients with symptoms. You're screening travelers who come in. You're screening the sewage system to see whether there's a particular area where the virus is more um, uh, is, is coming up again, right? So I think uh, specific zone lockdowns is very useful in maintaining uh, a normal lifestyle elsewhere, right? But once you get to the state of um, USA or the UK, then it's extremely tricky, you know? And could it be that, you know, you can have a short mass lockdown and then when you open up, you have to keep people who are vulnerable in lockdown in perpetua, like uh, elderly, um, you know, open up schools and all that to mitigate the risk of, you know, missing out on education. You know, uh, younger people can go about their working lives as well. They can't see their parents, you know. So there's certain things that we have to accept once the virus is so prevalent, what is an acceptable um, uh, uh lifestyle and what is an acceptable mortality you know in the younger population maybe you can accept that lots of people get it there will be certain amount of mortality um but we have to shield certain bits of the population out and keep them in lockdown uh, uh, before you know, so, uh, before i go to you christian um i also want to recognize that there are different types of lockdowns right there are hard lockdowns there are soft mm. lockdowns so that's a, a different angle as well but to be fair there have been countries that have Im- have not imposed a lockdown and have managed, right? You're talking about your Taiwans, your South Koreas, and uh, the biggest example uh, is, um, the, well, the most, or the most radical, because at least with Taiwan and South Korea, they did like insane, like contact tracing. Yes, correct. Tracing, uh, screening, very good tracing screening. If you got that, uh, at least you can detect where the virus is and get on top of it very quickly. And they did do impose little lockdowns and little quarantines whenever the virus popped up. Sure. And even with Taiwan, I'm 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 really surprised that Taiwan is not and, not sorry. Yeah, yeah. Just just to add in, also very high rate of compliance of social distancing, mask wearing, hand cleaning, hand hygiene. Yeah, the culture is just so strong. No question. Mm. You know, no no liberty because it's I'm it's my duty. <laughs> no, so like with um uh, Taiwan, I'm surprised that they're not in the conversation more. Because they have a huge population, what, like 30, 30 million or something like that, like about Malaysia size. 20, 27 20, million. Yeah, there's one more thing as well to, to mention about this population picture, yeah? Mm. Um, de- your demographic also differs, right? The aging population group in Australia is much higher, very similar to Italy, right. than um, the aged population in Malaysia or Africa, right? Yep. So the consequence of the virus going rampant in countries like USA, uh, UK is different. Right. Because a big tranche of your population are the high-risk ones. Yeah. 
Right, right. Uh, yeah, totally agree. Uh, but even with uh, Taiwan, one of the things they did that I thought was pretty impressive was that they their parliament banned the, the export of face masks. So they stockpiled their face masks and it, everybody were, was wearing face masks alongside rigorous tracing, but they never had to do a lockdown because of that, right? Uh, but a more uh, radical version of that is Sweden. Sweden is used, right? Because they never imposed masks, never imposed uh, social distancing, uh, no lockdown. But the spread of COVID in Sweden was very, very low. And people, well, oh. yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, you can go for it. So, so I, I want to I hear your thoughts on Sweden. Yeah, look, I think there is a certain level of civic-mindedness there as well. So even though the spread was lower than expected, um, it was still higher than states that imposed the lockdown, right? Uh, people did social distance um, personally. They may have used masks, right? Uh, depending, they were advised that this, you can do it, you might choose not to, right? So it's an interesting approach, but their mortality rate is the highest in Europe, okay? Uh, for per population, all right, mm. per capita. Um, if as a society, you're able to accept that mortality rate for whatever benefit you think you're gaining from it, then fair mm. enough. But I think a lot of um, uh, uh, people who've analyzed the economic um, outcome of Sweden realized that their economic benefit wasn't much higher than other states that imposed the lockdown anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, because they didn't impose the lockdown, there was a propensity for some of the EU countries to not trade with them because they worried that they don't know where the disease is in their community. Right, right. Christian, any thoughts? Yeah, I would caution against, you know, using Sweden as an example for the effectiveness of lockdowns everywhere else in the world. Because there are no two countries that are more different than Sweden and say, um, you know, countries in Borneo, Indonesia. Yeah, yeah that's a or, good point. Or, yeah, uh, yeah, just to add, sorry, Christian, even with the Nordic countries, right, when they, because everyone's always fascinated with the Nordic countries and how they run, uh, because they are like this amalgamation of like capitalism and uh, so- socialism. socialism. They, like Everyone says they found the perfect balance. But like a big chunk of that mm-hmm. is they have a high level of trust between the state and the people. You know, and corruption is very low. And so like the, the, the parallels with other countries are actually very, very different because I don't know whether other countries have that relationship with their governments, right? So that, that, that's another angle. Yeah. yeah, sorry, Christian, what are you saying? And just, you know, just thinking about simple things like where do people live? Mm. And when they live, how many people are in a household? It's stark contrast between families in Sweden that are normally about four, four people at max, five people in a house. When compared to Sabah, there's sometimes 20 yeah. people living in a household. Yeah. And this is normal, okay? This is normal in Sabah that a house is not one family, but they are, you know, the brothers, sisters, and all their children live in one house. That is normal. Yeah. So you, you absolutely, you know, Malaysia, if any of our politicians compared the situation between here and Sweden they'd be making an egregious mistake in doing so. The demographic is different. The social uh, lifestyle and circumstances completely different, you know. And we know the virus affects people of lower socioeconomic standing uh, disproportionately. Is that a fact? Because of these things. Yeah, that's a fact. Mm. Overcrowding. Even within within your population, like you look at the second wave in Melbourne, it affected people who worked at the meatworks, who lived in families that were uh, a lot more um, uh, bigger and closer and have to live in closer quarters, right? And the, another flow-on effect is because they had very little protection for their job and their income 
and no social help, they tended to still go back to work because they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. Um, and then spread it, and then more people around their population and social demographic would get it, right? So it disproportionately actually affects people of uh, a lower socioeconomic background, um, so much so that now we've instituted things like COVID payments. So if you were test positive and are asked to isolate, the state will pay for you to isolate mm -hmm. uh, so that you don't then, because of an economic need, a real need, have to go and um, um, expose someone, you know, because you're picking between having food, shelter versus... You know? Yeah, definitely. And I suppose with high income or even middle income uh, um, employees, having a cubicle makes a big difference. Whereas working in a factory, yeah, uh, you mm. can't really social distance yourself. That's right. Close quarters, mm. cold conditions. Yeah, I mean, if you just looked at the story in Malaysia about how lockdowns, you know, our kind of relationship with lockdowns, it tells a very telling story. You know, we imposed lockdowns very early in March, I believe. And our numbers came down drastically. There was barely any cases for yeah, months. Yeah. We had a successful we opened the economy. We had a successful up, lockdown. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And we opened up the economy again, rightfully so, and people went back to work. And it was still fine until the elections came about. It was election season in Sabah. And cases were going up in Sabah. It was going up for weeks. You know, Tawau already had cases. And Tawau had cases because I've been there, I live there. Immigration is terrible. There's a flow of people coming in and out of the state, crossing borders all the time under the radar. And this is this just happens, right? Um, and Tawau got hit really hard. Now, the state could have very quickly responded then and said, okay, let's close down the whole, this whole district and stop people from traveling out first. But they could not do that because an election was coming up. And they needed to keep borders open so that politicians could come in and campaign and and uh, people could attend Chiramas. They were still holding Chiramas publicly. So that was an example of something we could have prevented like the first time, could have stopped it, but it came on too late. By the time the lockdown came after the elections, daily cases were coming up at about 400 to 500 a day. And even after the lockdown, you saw that the cases didn't yeah. go down. It kept, it was so prevalent. The disease was everywhere. And in the case of Sabah, Putting people back home is no different from sending them to work because they live with so many people that it's the same as them going to work. Mm. They're exposed to the same amount of people. Mm. And, mm. you know, so that tells us the story about the effectiveness yeah. of lockdown. It didn't work so well in Sabah because it was just way too late. Yeah. And, and again, if Sabah was thrust, thrust into a lockdown early and they had no cases and very few deaths, the commenters will say, why did we go into lockdown in the first place? Mm. No cases, what? No deaths, what? I'm not seeing anything happen. Yeah. There's a lag again, yeah. yeah? You get the infectious period, you start seeing things 14 days later. You're, whatever you institute, you only see the results 14 days later. Human beings are not used to that. We like to, we got pain, we take a Panadol, the pain goes, we see cause and effect. Right. Like when it's slightly further, when we're talking about the cause and effect of years or months, we are not too good at that, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, we we, we are very reactionary, right? As people, we, we want... And especially in these times, we want everything immediately. We want to see, uh, we want to see the effects immediately. We want the response to be immediate. We want the solution to be immediate, right? We need a McDonald's version of this uh, uh, pandemic. Um, <laughs> I just want it to go away. <laughs> um, I, I want to go into the last area, which is like vaccines and even herd immunity. Yes. But before that, both of you have actually been uh, very. Um, uh, you had a lot of positive feedback to about the Malaysian government in handling this matter. 
uh, in handling this whole uh, COVID thing. And so I thought for our listeners, it might be beneficial for them to just hear your thoughts on the Malaysian government's response. Uh, maybe you can go with Christian first. I actually don't know if I feel positively about how the Malaysian government has okay. approached it. I think they've taken the conserv- the very conservative route at every turn. And while that is prudent, um, I I honestly don't know if all of it is necessary. But that's just, you know, that's just my... I, I can completely understand why they're taking the most conservative route because that's the safest thing to mm. do. Um, but it, sta- it starts getting, getting to a point when... I mean, I'm going to choose my words carefully, but whether, you know, the science is telling you that it's safe to do some right. things. And, and if, you, you know... I, I, can you give an example? Do you like, have an example? I think I'll give you an example. Like, you know, I work in a research lab and there were a couple of cases in the university uh, where a few of the people in the university of 20,000 people was positive. And because of that, they shut down everything. Everything, no one could even enter the university. Uh, But the reality is I work in a lab where there's at most four of us at a time in the whole lab. And even then, the lab is not open 24 hours. If it was open 24 hours, we could very easily put in a schedule where there's no, not, not more than one person in the lab at a time. And after every time we use the lab, we, you know, sanitize, we already do sanitize our surfaces after every time we use it. So, the, the, you know, and I think there needs to be a bit of discernment there about what is a rational thing to do. It felt to me, coming from my background, that it would have been very possible to just let people go to work, put in a schedule where no one's exposed to each other, you know, we're coming in on a schedule and we can work. We can continue with our work. There's really no need to force us all to just close the whole university when some things could still run as normal. And that's just one example that is closer to me, but I see that kind of ripple through many, many things. There are a lot of things that we could do safely uh, that would just add to the quality of our lives a little bit more. I'll give you an example. A lot of states in Malaysia have imposed a you know, strict ban to entry. Sarawak is one of them. Uh, strict ban to entry. No one other than Sarawakians can come into the country. But, uh, sorry, the state, Sarawak. But the safe thing to do is, you know, when you reach at the airport, give everyone a PCR test. A PCR test results comes out in three days max. So, you know, before you get that PCR test, you stay in a hotel for three days, four days. Once you come out negative, the chances of you actually having COVID is very, very, very small. Mm. And, to me, that, that possibility of a mistake happening is so small that it doesn't warrant stopping everyone from entering such a huge stage. Sarawak is so important to our economy. It's so important to you know, families being united and again. You, their families and like you, which, you can't get back to work. Yeah, I can't get back to work because of it. I may not be able to enter the state if I leave. You know, There's so many complications, right? And it seems to me like that there are much more scientifically acceptable ways to move forward because we have the tools. Um, so, you know, while I appreciate that Malaysia has been conservative and taking a very safe approach, um, I also do question whether all of it is absolutely necessary. Uh, and I think that is only normal. And it's, it, right? Cause yeah, it's important to scrutinize, right? Uh, we, we, yeah, yeah, either, exactly. either side of the spectrum, you don't want to be a sort of, you don't want to follow the herd uh, Unquestioning in an unquestioning manner, Josh. What do you think? 
Yeah, yeah. look, I, I, I would agree with Christian in that. I think um, uh, a measured approach um, to long-term lockdowns, when you've let the virus go, right, uh, will be required so that, you know, society can return to some uh, semblance of normality, you know. Um, again, things, the strategies that we have for a country like Malaysia to institute at a state-state level is actually quite hard. So it's easier and might be cost-efficient to the government to impose a strategy that is statewide, right, or nationwide. Because one case isn't the same as another. Who's going to decide uh, whether the PCR was positive or not? The testing that would be required. Instituting that in a national sense might be something they're working on in the background. They just haven't got to it yet, you see. Um, so there's a lot of complications when it comes to instituting things out uh, safely, publicly, because if one person skips and goes through, um, that sets off another um, uh, cascade of uh, infection, hence the, the caution. Um, uh, but, you know, it's not, it doesn't come without a cost. I completely accept that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think one thing that I would say I would commend the government um, for in Malaysia in particular, from my understanding, is that they've actually listened to the health advice, um, you know, as, as, as cautiously as they can uh, to a you know, especially the first lockdown, you know, they were letting the health um, uh, team kind of drive their policy. And obviously they, were, yeah. they, would, they would question, I think it's important to question um, the, the advice. But at the same time, you know, I think, I think they were quite reasonable in that. Um, this is the unfortunate effect of letting the, lock, the, the virus get ahead of you, right? Because then you're just yeah. scrambling to try and figure out what to do to try and contain it and safely run a, a, a country. Mm. Um, so again... I'm in favor of short, sharp, sweet, <laughs> quick, hard lockdowns, short, hard lockdowns, know where the virus is, then you can open up. You know? Yeah. So, uh, while I recognize that there are legitimate concerns uh, raised by people about COVID, I also recognize that there is a faction which is I would call the conspiracies, where this whole thing is orchestrated by Bill Gates uh, to sort of... Uh, I don't know what the outcome is here, to build a new world order where there's only one mass state and this is all orchestrated by dragons from the interstellar, interdimensional, <laughs> you know, <laughs> species of archons that have come and this is the Illuminati. Here's what I don't get. Here's what I don't get. The alternatives proposed are even more preposterous. No, than this is like, you know, you... When you base your logical reasoning on a fallacy, <laughs> you're going to arrive at a false conclusion. Um, and it often, uh, when it comes to uh, conspiracists, it involves meticulous coordination of ex <laughs> innumerable amount of uh, aspects of society, and everyone is in cahoots <laughs> for some particular uh, gain. Yeah. That is, again an unpalatable gain. We don't know what the gain is, <laughs> but there is some gain, you know? Yeah, and you start questioning everyone about what their background intention is. Yeah. And I, I have a fundamental belief that, you know, when people look at drug companies, they say, oh, they're all they're driven by profit, you know? They just want to make money, blah, 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 right? I fundamentally believe the people who think that have a true belief that if they were in that position, that's what I would do. Because uh, if I was running uh, it's like, I want to make money. It's a projection. I would make my money. Like a projection. So it's a projection like, yeah. of what they think they would do in that situation as well. 
You know, so it's more it's more an insight into their personality yeah. than it is an insight into reality. Yeah, that, I mean that's the thing I get as well. I'm I think to myself, you you look to countries like South Korea or Taiwan for doing well. You even look at like Sweden for doing well, but not one state has come on and said that COVID doesn't exist. Not one state has said that COVID should be taken. Uh, uh, you know. Uh, you know, it's just something. No, that, that there go. was one state. I think Tanzanian president uh, said something along the lines oh. of COVID was doesn't exist. Oh, really? Uh, I I think yeah yeah. So you know that that's that's again not necessarily based in reality, yeah. but that's what he said. Yeah, but the majority. And so like like what you said, for there to be a scam to, of this nature of this size, the level of coordination that you'd have to 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 the connect the the lines that you would have to draw between the governments. Uh, the, the big pharma, uh, the, whoever is you know like, getting from this, it will be insane, right? It will be insane. Okay. Yeah. I think the one legitimate, I mean, the one to me like the one theory that maybe frightens people is that this virus was introduced. Yes. And that could be that sounds like a sensible uh, conclusion. Seeing you know seeing what's happening, that could be what happened. But I mean, the only thing I can say about that really is that viruses coming from wildlife that are novel to us is not a new occurrence yes. and is only expected. And that's exactly why so many countries have pandemic plans yes. in place. Yeah. Because all kinds of virus, wildlife harbor all kinds of viruses yeah. that are unbeknownst yeah. to us. Yeah. And let's unpack that 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 worry or that sentiment that someone unleashed this virus on us. Right? Yeah. Okay. Can I just say um, before before you go into Josh, because I also have read uh, mm. from people that you know uh, thinkers that I respect that question uh, whether the virus was manufactured because they, mm-hmm. they feel that the way it spread or the characteristics of the virus it looks like it's made out of a lab. I I'm not well read enough to comment on that. So, but before you know, just to frame it up. So yeah. Uh, okay, so talking about like the what the virus looks like and whether it looks like it's made in a lab or not, but evolution is in a strong and amazing driver, right? And as a virus, this virus has a very strong um, uh, ability to replicate um, in a host, right? Us um, and not cause too much harm to the host uh, in a large uh, portion of the host, right? So. Um, it is a virus that is very successful and that can, the evolutionary pressure can cause that, right? It doesn't have to be manufactured, mm-hmm. right? The second thing I'd like to say is now we've got a pandemic. It doesn't matter how the pandemic or the virus came. We have to act on it and we have to, divert, <laughs> div- we have to make sure that we're spending enough energy and resources in trying to allow us to regain our liberties, right? Liberated from, liberate us from the shackles of the virus um, later on, we can figure out how it came and prevent it from happening again. Yep. And point number three is that if this was a sinister plan that was devised in a lab somewhere and then unleashed on the world, um, okay, that could happen. But don't you want us to develop the technology to be able to tackle it and deal with it as a race quickly so that it becomes a lesser threat? Mm. We will be able to deal yeah, with pandemics quicker. We will be able to deal with pandemics yeah. whether it's introduced or whether it's a naturalized phenomena. You know, uh, that, yeah. we, we're experiencing a pandemic now. There's not question. There's no question about that. We need to develop a way to tackle it. Whether it was introduced, whether it was developed, we'll tackle it. And next time it comes, we'll be better placed to to deal with it. Right, Christian, do you want to add on? 
and the science is already yeah the science has already started um, trying to deduce the problems and this is coming from the wildlife scene right because this this is an area that we can help out with so like in Sabah I'm in char- I'm in, in p- part of a study that is screening all wildlife and domestic animals close to wildlife to look for traces of not just covid but new viruses that we need to be on the lookout for places like Sabah is actually a prime place for viruses from wildlife to transmit to humans right because humans live very close to the forest uh, that you know in my it's crazy in the camera with the camera traps i use 10 kilometers in the jungle we see dogs there domestic dogs that belong to villagers what that means is the dogs are going in potentially eating another animal and coming back to his master and then licking his master's face <laughs> that is a horrible situation right because he could eat a pangolin the pangolin could have god knows what virus bring it back transmitted to his to his master and that's it pandemic number 2 right. for the year it's a it's a very scary situation and we need to guard ourselves against it so like you know saba and the group i work with is already we already screening uh, animals for stuff like this mm-hmm. um okay so a big part of this uh, sinister plot from the archons have come down to infect the masses build a new world order it seems like the final stage of that plan is vaccines um it's somehow connected to like the 666 and the beast and all of that is somehow imbued in this vaccine okay so before we go into it what are vaccines and how do they work i can talk about that because everything after this i think josh will have to take the lead <laughs> <laughs> i can talk about the basic mechanism right and it's a very simple one one of the first vaccines ever made was for smallpox which was a very deadly virus in i think like 17th century or something like that and it was commissioned by the emperor of spain at the time because all of their soldiers were dying in south america because south america had a huge outbreak of smallpox and how they did it was they took a weakened version of the virus from the the poxes that come up on their skin they had a weakened ver- version of the virus they took a bit of that and transfer transfected it on an on a healthy person and that because it's a weakened virus it doesn't have all the same dangerous symptoms but the structure of the virus is there and when the structure of the virus is there your body is able to develop an immune response to it a weakened immune response but still an immune response and the way your body works is brilliant when your body recognizes there's one foreign particle it'll develop specific antibodies to fight it but after the particle goes away and there are no more antibodies your body is able to remember what that virus looked like and when the virus comes back again your body says hey i've seen you before and i already know how to fight you let me make that antibody again and fight you right so that's when you develop an immunity um and so the way vaccines work is it introduces the the virus our body develops uh, an immunity to it and we're protected for a long time Sometimes you need multiple doses of the vaccine to get long-term immunity. And that's the basic concept. How they introduce the virus into your body, you know, whether it's a weakened virus, a small part of the virus, only the DNA of the virus, that is where companies are playing around with and different labs are toying around with to see what's most effective. But the basic principle is we're taking small parts of virus, putting it inside of you in a safe way, so your body can develop immunity right. itself. So but here's my question and either one can answer. If it it sounds so simple and straightforward, why haven't we created vaccines for the previous coronaviruses? 
we have uh, we have created vaccines for the previous coronaviruses. Um, okay. Just uh, that by the time of deploying the vaccine, those viruses weren't as transmissible, and they kind of reached uh, sort of um, uh, the virus became endemic. Um, so there was no need to vaccinate. And this is again another example of uh, science showing you that when it's not needed, right? Mm-hmm. We're not going to say you're going to got to take this vaccine no matter what. Those drug companies that invested money on that vaccine, they lost money. Right, right. Um, okay, then what about the common flu? Do we also have a vaccine for the common flu? I mean, when you say what? common flu, yeah, yeah, flu. yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mean influenza. Influenza, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I knew it was coming when I said it. <laughs> we, the whip, we do have the a whip vaccine is out. for Get influenza. your terms right. We do. Right. Um, as a healthcare worker, I take the vaccine every year during winter. Yeah. Um, the vaccine, because as I mentioned, the flu vaccine has a lot of reassortment. The DNA changes. Um, it's seasonal. We, the World Health Organization have a body of scientists that study the flu panel uh, patterns around the world. So in the winter of uh, the Northern Hemisphere, it looks at what flu was there, what was prevalent, what was the most prevalent strain. And they develop a vaccine based on that strain. And that gets administered in the Southern Hemisphere. And then w- during the Southern Hemisphere, they, they look at what is the Winter, they look at what is the most prevalent strain there and then they develop a vaccine for the Northern Hemisphere. So there's so many different flu strains or types. We vaccinate against the most prevalent type, right? And that's why some people can still get the flu, right? right. But because the mortality of flu is quite high, um, I don't want to carry the flu from one patient to the next. I get the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, that we do have a vaccine for the flu. Right. It's not as successful because of the nature of the flu virus, right. not because of the vaccine. Yeah, when when even I was very um, worried about the vaccine, just because I know a lot of people don't want to take a vaccine. Because even before this whole pandemic, people were very cautious about vaccines, right? And um, I was just thinking about, what are you going to do? Are you going to force people to take vaccines? Um, and, and so, uh, before that, I guess, the, the question is... Uh, can vaccines be dangerous to a person? Um, of course. Anything can be dangerous to a person. Drinking water can be dangerous to a person. You can choke on a glass of water. Crossing the street can be dangerous to a person. But here's the thing, right? Um, you have very rigorous, randomized, controlled, placebo-controlled trials that look at vaccines, and it's compared to the alternate, okay? I look at smallpox. Or look at um, uh, polio, for example, right? There was a generation of people who were living on iron lungs because of the polio vaccine, sure. right? That's artificially being, not vaccine, sorry, polio bug, yep. right? Artificially being ventilated, right? Polio is still p- present in, in places of Pakistan where they're trying so hard to eradicate it, okay? Mm-hmm. And the vaccine has helped eradicate it. It does have some side effects, flu-like illness. Some people can get an immune response to the vaccine and they can get autoimmune phenomena, right? Mm-hmm. But... When you give it over a million people, you'll see one case or two cases of that. If you give a million people polio, you'll see lots of people with paralysis and weakness, right? That is the trade-off, right? It'll be um, wrong for me to say uh, a vaccine um, has got no side effects or no risks. That's not true. Mm. But the truth is, the risk you expose yourself when you take a vaccine is much smaller than being exposed to the native virus or other things that you seem to accept on a daily basis, right? Like uh, in, 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 a, in a guise of uh, protecting my liberty and my right to drink on a Friday night, I go to Bangsa because I think it's my right. doesn't matter if there's a pandemic, right. right? The fact that I'm ingesting alcohol puts me at much higher risk of cancer, 
a much higher risk of misadventure, falling over, knocking my head, ending up in hospital and realizing the hospital beds are full of COVID patients. I don't get a treatment and I'm paralyzed for life. Mm. Um, or, you know, all, all, driving home all, with all, some alcohol. All this while... All actions, all this, everything has risk. All this while, know. I thought uh, alcohol was... Uh, you know, used as a cleaning method. So I thought I was, <laughs> I thought I was doing a good You're thing. Self-sterilizing, <laughs> yeah, sterilizing yourself. Internally, I thought I was helping. Um, uh, so, okay, so uh, th- there are risks. So, but then I would, uh, like you said, there are rigorous uh, safety tests, right? Yeah. So here's the thing that worries me about COVID as a layperson. Yeah. I see that how quick a vaccine came about and how it seems to me to be rushed because look, the I think they only got like positive results about two months ago, I think now. And they're already planning to release it in March. Malaysia, right? I think has a contract with uh, Pfizer. And, okay. and and so like to me as a layperson, I look at it and I'm like, this seems a bit shady. Shouldn't there be more testing? What Shouldn't there be like okay. t- testing as to the safety? It shouldn't, how do we know in the long term this is not going to affect us, right? Yeah, yeah. Um. So... To answer your question, first, how did you come up to the, with the conclusion that this has been rushed? Yeah, so that's just my own, you know, I just, my assumption is it would take longer than this, right? Yeah, but how did you, you've made an assumption there. Yeah. How did you come, I really want to know how you came to, up to, with that conclusion. I, I, I honestly, I, I have no idea how I came to that conclusion. It just okay. seems like really, really quick to me. La. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I would, because it seems like really such a complex I, I issue, think, right? I would think it would yeah, take yeah. more time. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I I think to and help I you think a bit for there, me, I, I always figured that when you would test medication or drugs, it would go through a very long, you know, process of of uh, uh, testing, lah. Right. Mm-hmm. I think we have a benchmark of how long it's taken to produce other vaccines, and we, you know, there are, there is news that it will typically typically take eight years, ten years, five years, um, to produce a effective vaccine that went through all the trials. So I think news like that is circulating around. So you know, rightfully so, a lot of people are asking, how come this one's only taking, you know, one and a half years or less? Okay. I can provide an explanation to that. Mm. Um, Very good. I think it's important to understand the phases of, of a development of vaccine and knowing that a vaccine is different to a drug, yeah? Uh, the drugs aren't uh, trialed as rigorously as vaccines because you only give people who are sick drugs. You give vaccines to healthy people as well. Right. So it's actually much more stringent. The side effect profile must be much more slimmer and the benefit must be observed in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, so firstly, um, in you have to have phase one trial, right? So the whole first 10 years of a vaccine development is coming up, finding out what you're vaccinating against properly, developing the genetic material for that, right? The code of the virus, yeah? That's the only way you can come up with rapid testing. That's the only way you can come up with a target for a vaccine. Then understanding which proteins of the virus itself is going to elicit a safe immune response, right? Concerted amount of resources were diverted to do this process that might be done in serial in parallel. So lots of this work was being done in tandem by multiple labs around the world, right? So that could accelerate us to the point where we could do phase one, um, two, um, uh, clinical trials, right? So this is where you, we, we, we've managed to uncover the genome in February. We found the spike protein that can elicit the, the, the immune response late February, very quick, right? And we start recruiting people for phase one. So traditionally phase one trials is where you check uh, the safety and the dosing, 
and the immune response. So you give a small proportion of people, let's say 10, 15, 20 people, you give them a dose and see whether it's safe. What are the local reactions? Um, are there anything that, is there anything that makes you not want to give it at all in, that, in this initial phase? You assess what the immune response is. You measure the immune antibodies, like you say, to the virus and you see, okay, is it actually feasible? Is it actually a, a candidate, right? This happens to animals initially. Right. Okay. Um, then you have volunteers where you combine phase one, two, you look at the adequate dose and the side effect profile. This is phase two, right? Once you move on from phase two, you, you have a, a, bigger, a bigger group of people in phase two. You see, okay, you may have two candidates. Which one causes more side effects than the other? Immediate side effects, yeah? While this is going on, you're assessing the long-term side effects for each people that you've recruited in these phases, yeah? Mm -hmm. Then you have phase three. Now, this is called a randomized placebo-controlled trial. What this means is that who gets the vaccine and who gets a placebo is randomized, completely randomized. Yeah. So there's a randomization software or something that says, candidate, this gets this number, you get this envelope, that envelope has a coding, you get the, an injection. The person administering the injection is blinded. They don't know whether they're giving placebo or vaccine. Mm -hmm. The person who's getting the virus is blinded, double blind. They don't know whether they're getting placebo or vaccine, right? They do this. Um, for a large enough amount of the population where they randomize 50 to 50. This is, I'm talking about vaccine trials in, specific, uh, in particular, yeah? And after a certain amount of time, they wait to see how many people get the virus, okay? If we were not living in a pandemic situation where the virus was not very prevalent, right? You're trying to develop a vaccine for dengue, for example, or for malaria, right? You have to wait much longer to get enough people to be infected because the virus isn't very prevalent, to come up with an adequate signal that you're, you know that if you're measuring a difference, it's not just due to chance, okay? When you're living in pandemic conditions, you can run trials and people are at higher risk of exposure. And so these companies that did the trials uh, in, co in coordination with uh, institutions like University of Oxford and other universities, figured out that we need at least 190 people being positive before we know whether or not this, there's going to be a signal difference, yeah? So I'll, I'll talk about the Pfizer one in particular, right? Amazing technology, mRNA vaccines. You should look into it. It's really fascinating how, how we kind of um, using our own uh, body to produce a small peptide, just part of the virus that can elicit an immune response. So we don't get, uh, and it's in the cells that present these peptides to other immune cells and activate this immune response, yeah? Um, so that we, we get an immune response of the virus, but we don't get the disease that the virus can cause. Right. Okay. It's like essentially optimizing a natural process in your body. So, but that's it. not in any way altering our DNA, right? No, of course not. To elicit um, that response. No, mm -hmm. no. What no. it uses is it uses genetic material, mm -hmm. right? And it then your body produces the peptide mm -hmm. that you would do if you had the virus anyway. Except this time you're just producing just an incomplete version of it that can't cause problems. Right. And your immune response now gets primed. The next time you get the real virus, it knows this is a virus. It can uh, shut it off really quickly. Okay. So in the Pfizer one, um, they in the phase three trial, yeah, they vaccinated 44,000 people across different populations, Brazil, America. So you'd think there'll be a good ethnic spread. Um, 
half got placebo, half got vaccine, and they waited and waited until at least 190 people was were found positive for the for 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 the virus. Yeah, and then when they analyzed those 190 people, they found that out of that group, only 10 came from the vaccine group, mm. and the rest were all from the uh, placebo group. And that's how they come up with their number. And the statisticians would have gone through and said, you need at least this amount of people before um, you can say clearly that um, that uh, uh, this uh, vac- you have enough power to say that this difference wasn't just chance. Right. Okay. Now, when it comes to the long-term effects of a vaccine, we we don't know because we just haven't had the long-term lens. Mm-hmm. Right. As more and more people get the vaccine, we will get information, and we have to report any adverse event that we think is related to a vaccine. Anything, even now, if we give someone um, measles vaccine or mumps vaccine or something, and then they develop a, an adverse event that we think is related to the vaccine, we report it, mm. and then we might have to halt a whole batch of vaccines going on. And this again points to why it's important. This is done scientifically, and. The scientific process has a method to recognize these things and tell us, "Look, we should be stopping that change, right?" Mm-hmm. A natural virus going through the population doesn't have that process. We don't know if 10 years from now we'll develop a group of people with, you know, long haulers they call them, with severe disability. Who knows, right? right? Um, another important point is the way it was accelerated is the combination of phase one, two, the fact that the initial bit of Coming up with the genetic material and finding the peptide that would respond uh, well in immune sense, all done really quickly. Mm. While they were recruiting people in phase two, they were already recruiting people in phase three. And while all this was going on, they were mass producing all the vaccines. Every single candidate was being mass produced because then the moment they have a result that has been peer reviewed, right? Again, I caution: this paper, these details, has been reported in the media as an opinion. We need it to be peer reviewed. That means a journal publication that gets published, peers look at it, they question it, they make sure the data is robust, they look at the stats before it's published. When you have a few peer-reviewed papers that say the same thing, it's enacted into practice, right? Mm-hmm. But this is a pandemic, so the emergency acts are being utilized by certain countries. Okay, uh, that's a, again a different debate. Um, when we come into uh, the phase three. The drug, the the, the vaccines are already ready. That's how it's been accelerated. Yeah, traditionally, the first phase would take ten years, mm-hmm. five years, depending on what they were trying to research. The sec phase one would take a whole year. Phase two would take a whole year. Here they've combined some of that, right? right? And because they've got such prevalent virus, it's easy to recruit people at risk of getting the virus, right? You don't have to do it in a select group, you know. And phase three was happening uh, while they were reporting phase two. You know, they started they they. So none of the 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 scientific data that's required to move forward was ever overlooked. Okay. Okay. Um, another important thing to remember about COVID, we've essentially tested all vaccine platforms against this virus. So there's an mRNA, there's a peptide. They might be live attenuated. Different strat- strategies of attacking this and eliciting a vaccine response has been tested. Um, and the amazing thing about mRNA vaccines, it can be. Produced very quickly. Once you know the genetic material and the code, you just have to copy that and then in an mRNA form and then protect it with a lipid particle and get it into people. Mm-hmm. We've used vaccines to treat cancers. I mean, it, we haven't yet, but that's one of the ideas. Figure out a being able to upscale this quickly is one of the ideas. I've got a cancer. My cancer cells are going to look different to your cancer cells, mm-hmm. but with this vaccine technology, I might be able to then look at my cancer cells, find a peptide, 
make an mRNA protein really quickly that can target that peptide, right? Mm -hmm. And then inject that back into me. So my immune system starts recognizing that specific cancer right. and starts killing it off, mm -hmm. right? So um, the technology itself is something that over the last three to four years, people have been trying to figure out how to do it really quickly so they can personalize delivery of personalized vaccines That's for different it. people, for different other diseases, yeah. you know? So the fact that it could be scaled up really quickly isn't because they were cutting corners. That's the technology itself. Right. You look 50 years ago, development of vaccine take even longer. People were just using, you look 100 years ago, people were just using different uh, varieties of bugs, hoping that it was less effic efficacious and injecting that more people survived, you know? Right, but, so, but I think and another assumption I'm making, wouldn't the testing for the effectiveness of the vaccine be separate to the testing of its safety? Wouldn't there be the safety profile tests, tests get done initially? But when you roll out a vaccine, sorry, sorry, I missed that last bit. Your connection cut out a little bit. Sorry. Yeah. No. So wouldn't the testing for um, the effectiveness of the vaccine and the safety of the vaccine be two separate uh, things? No, they tested in the same. When you do a phase three trial, you look for side effects in the population you're giving the vaccine to, right? Mm -mm -mm -mm. So, so you look for, if anyone reports adverse effects, like, you know, localized swelling, flu-like uh, symptoms initially, um, a fever, some people get temperature with vaccines, and then they look for things that, are they priming your immune system too much that your immune system starts uh, causing this immune response, you know? Right. Um, so those adverse effects are looked at during the trial. And the likelihood of having a distant uh, immune response is very slim. So the chance of you having long-term reactions to this particular type of vaccine is actually much smaller because mRNA gets degraded. So the, the vaccine gets, you know, that vaccine mm. protein uh, product gets broken down by your body. Right, right, right. That's one of the challenges they had to overcome to try and use this as a platform to deliver hence, vaccines. Hence, hence the cold chain. You'll yeah. hear everyone talk about the it cold chain. It has to be chain. really cold. That's the big challenge. Yeah, it has to be in minus 80 from delivery till reception. Yeah, but I think, I think it... I and think it differs between the vaccines. I think it's different for... Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, AstraZeneca yeah. vaccine, um, the one with Oxford, right? Now, this is an example of, again, the scientific community and TGA saying, look, you've got to do more studies, okay? They had they reported a 70% efficacy of their virus. Their virus is different. It's a little bit of the spike protein that they inject to elicit the, the immune response. Not RNA, yeah? It's different, yeah? yeah not so it either. doesn't need to be in the cold chain. That's another advantage. It might be a vaccine that they can reach and target people who lower socioeconomic places where they can't maintain this cold chain, right? Mm -hmm. um, they, by fluke, found that when they gave an initial dose of half the dose and gave a second dose of full dose, the protection was higher, 90%, as opposed to 70 when they gave full dose both sides. It's fluke because it was a manufacturing error that manufactured those doses of half strength. And their rigorous trial protocol, they managed to identify that there was a group that received half dose in their first injection because they saw why some people had better protection than others in this particular group uh. and they found out they had half dose. So the TGA have said, you need to run a trial to make sure that this half dose and first dose signal that you got is actually a proper signal and not your study wasn't adequately powered to look at this half dose, full dose. So let's look at that before we would allow you to administer this drug as a 90%. You can send it out and say it's 70% effective vaccine because your trial probably supports that. But you can't say it's 90% uh, uh, um, um, 
uh, efficacious. And what that 90% number means, 90%, there was a difference. It protected uh, 90% of the population who received the vaccine. And that protection, we know, we didn't arrive to the conclusion by chance or 0.05% chance, right? Right, right, right. That's that's what this data says. So both of you are confident about the science behind the vaccines, like basically? I'm, I'm confident about the science behind the yeah. vaccines. But there are certain things yeah, we have to wait for, like, you know, medium to long-term effects, like you say. Mm-hmm. That requires a bit of time. And we would like the data to be published in peer-reviewed journals first before they become policy. Right. Yeah. And I think it goes without saying that, you know, if once more... I think it's only expected that once the vaccine really rolls out, we're going to see more counts of side oh, effects. Yeah. And that That's is only inevitable. expected. Yeah. So I wouldn't, you know, I would speak to the naysayers right now that when that happens, it is expected. Right. And, right? and it, it is not in any way a justification that the vaccine yeah. doesn't and work is, or is, is dangerous. It, again, a group that receives a particular treatment, there's this thing called nocebo. When you get a particular treatment and there's any side effects that someone tells you this can cause swelling, this can cause irritation, you tend to get that. There's a higher likelihood that you will actually experience that, not because the drug actually caused it. It's the nocebo effect. Like we accept the placebo effect, there's a nocebo effect as well. Right. And because the vaccine has to be rolled out to millions, you know, the side effect profile must be very, very safe before they would decide to do something like that. Like if someone... You could be that one in a million chance of transverse myelitis or that one in a million chance of uh, autoimmune stuff which we have treatment for, by the way. Um, but, um, you know, yeah, one in a million is a better odds, better odds than 0.2 or whatever it is, or even higher, 10% if you um, have a high um, a risk profile. I, yeah. I know this is going beyond the realm yeah. of maybe what you can provide, but do you guys have any personal thoughts, personal opinions on mandating compulsory vaccination? Maybe Christian, do you have any thoughts? Hmm. Um, I I do see how this is scary to some people. Um, I just remind everyone that you know we already have mandatory vaccines. It's not a new phenomenon. When you're born in Malaysia, we all get vaccinated for a whole host of things. Uh, I don't even remember yeah. when you're twelve. Girls Rubel- get the hepatitis vaccines, yeah. rubella. I can't remember what's the one at 12. Then there's the BCG. There's a whole host of vaccines that you get uh, that are mandatory. That are state, that st- the state pays for it and every Malaysian it gets for it. And we, we think about these vaccines of a health privilege rather than a dictate mm. because <laughs> the state is looking out for us and we are being protected from you know, mass disease. But we don't realize that it's, it's not just about protecting yourself. These are mandated because you're protecting other people too. Mm. Uh, and that's why it's so important. It's not about protecting you. The vaccines will not work if only select groups of people get it. Uh, the whole nature or idea behind a vaccine is that a community gets protected collectively. And if there are a few cracks in a way and a few people miss out, we trust that hopefully the herd can protect them. And what herd immunity basically means is that you know, if you are vaccinated and I'm COVID positive and you live with your parents at home, when we meet in the coffee shop outside, you're not going to pass it on to, your, to, to your parents. Although I have the, you know, I can, I, I'm positive, but you are vaccinated. You're not going to pass it on. So you are like a block to the virus. You, you know, you stop the spread. Uh, and that is herb, herd immunity. But herd immunity only works once a majority of the population has been vaccinated. Mm. 
And I think another point to yeah. bring up is, uh, again, with these vaccines, we don't know whether people who are vaccinated can then become non-transmitters. Could they still carry the virus and transmit just because they don't have symptoms or they don't develop a serious illness? They might still be able to transmit. That's why things like social distancing, mask wearing, washing your hands, it's here to stay. It's here to stay. Um, we hope the vaccine will reduce mortality. And once we have more data, we can make recommendations to change things, you know? Right. It's all about data collection yeah. and observation. Now, about mandating a vaccine, I think it's a bit of an ethical uh, uh, dilemma. Um, if if um, we had enough data to say the vaccine was completely efficacious and provides complete protection, you know, then mandating it makes sense, right? Because the benefit really outweighs uh, the risk as much. When we're still unsure, mandating it becomes a bit tricky. Uh, I think people should be given the option and they can make their decision based on uh, what risk they're willing to accept. Now, if you are a proponent of a free economy, I like not to wear masks, I don't want to wash my hands, I want to be able, the economy is so bad, so bad to the economy, right? Then, by definition, you should be willing to take the risk that a vaccine offers to allow the opening up of the economy. So you have to look into your own personal point of view and see if there's any clashes in your perspective where you're willing to accept certain risks for certain things, but not for others. You put something like the economy and capitalist system up on a pedestal, but at the same time, you're not willing to give up any risk in your own life for that gain, you see? Mm -hmm. So if you are someone who thinks that this has uh, troubled the economy so much, I want to be able to go to Bangsa, I want to be able to, to not wear a mask, a mask is strangulating me, mm. then... At the same time, being an anti-vaxxer doesn't, or being not anti-vaxxer, I should say, being anti-COVID vaccine seems a little bit illogical mm -hmm. because everything that led to the development of this vaccine is on the background of a fully capitalist-driven system that you then adhere to and you put up on a pedestal. Right, right, right. You know? um, yeah, so we need to wrap up, but maybe my last question uh, before we wrap up is, I think we live in a, like I think I was talking to you, Josh, and we were discussing about how this all seems like these problems didn't come because of COVID, right? There were yeah, some of these problems are not because of COVID. Yeah, there are problems in our society that were yes. already endemic lah, in a way, right? Yeah. And um, things like the way we talk to each other, the things about, especially about chains of communication and information and the way information mm. is passed on and the way we verify information because we had already started seeing it in like uh, not just our aunties and uncles and parents but even our peers and the way messages are spread through WhatsApp. You know, mm. the, 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 the ph phenomenon of like fake news and things like that. All that was yeah. amplified because of COVID, right? So, I guess my question to both of you would be how is a lay person like myself supposed to navigate a complex issue and get the right information that I need to to make a properly informed decision about this whole thing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe, yeah, Josh, maybe Josh, you oh, okay. go first. I think um, um, I was listening to an interview recently. They were talking about Brave New World and Algis Huxley was giving this interview and he said quite um, cogently that uh, the Brave New World we're facing is when um, politicians, the state, try to uh, suppress the logical man in favor of the illogical man and try to enrage us, stoke our basest of emotions 
And that emotion is then conflated with fact. I feel this, therefore it is. Right. Right? Um, that is the problem. And the way we can get around that is to make um, sure that we keep our institutions, the integrity of institutions strong. Like you say, for democracy, it's the judiciary, independence of judiciary, the house, um, and you know, having checks and balances, right? In the scientific world, it's the same. We have um, groups of people that come to a conclusion about a particular piece of data, try to get to the same conclusion. We have to be able to trust the experts. These are people who spend their lives doing these jobs, right? They're not people who are looking at an opinion piece. They're not journalists. These are scientists, right? When we are confronted with information from the media and the press, what it is to do research is not just Googling something and reading another opinion piece, because then you can pick the narrative that fits your cognitive bias. I want to see the world a certain way. I will read what tells me what I'm seeing is right. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel right. 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 That is not research. What is research? You have to look to the source material. You have to go in and analyze where the data came from. And that's hard. Mm. And that's why people dedicate their lives to this job. Right. Mm. And you have to then trust it. Like if I need legal advice, I'm not going to go and study law in, in half a day and be able to defend myself cogently in a, in a court of law. I won't be able to do that. Yeah. Right. Yep. I accept that. That is not my area. It's not my expertise. I stay in my lane, mm, right? Mm -hmm. And so being able to know that this is not your area of expertise and if I really care about it, learn about it, but learn about it properly. And if I come up with an opinion, not only question the opposite opinion, but question my opinion. How did I come to that conclusion as well? How did this person come to that conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. You can't just pick everything that fits with your narrative, fits with your hyperbole, and then just say that is fact, that is true, hence this, that, you know. Skepticism, you know, is alive and well. And healthy skepticism is dying. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair, fair. Christian? Um, yeah, I'll just echo that. But also, you know, the, the fact is, you know, when... when we are under a perceived threat that, you know, we got to draw the line and, and think about whether we understand something truly or not before coming up with a conclusion, right? And be on, you know, if you're honest with yourself and realize you don't understand something, the natural way we deal with it is to defer to people who do and ask questions, right? And that's not to say that you shouldn't question them, but you ask questions to people who do understand it so that you understand it. A good example I'll give for this is, you know, if tomorrow we were bombed by, I don't know, any country, okay, Malaysia, we were bombed, would everyone start telling the Prime Minister or Chief Defence Minister or whatever, what is the best strategy forward? Would we all start having an opinion about it? I mean, we could all have opinions, but would you start telling the Defence Minister what is the best way they should defend, we should defend ourselves? Or would we you know, rely on the expertise of the people who have been preparing for this, this very situation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think time and time again, in all the wars that have passed, we rely on that expertise. And I know paralleling this disease outbreak and war is not the best visualization, but in a lot of ways, we are fight fighting a threat. Mm. Of course, the threat is a microorganism, 
and the warriors who are fighting it are not soldiers with guns but you know un- scientists didn't expect to be put in this position but for some reason they find themselves in the situation where they are like warriors fighting a, a threat and they need to be given the freedom to do the work that they've always done mm. uh and you know you asked a very good question to me before why is communication so poor in the scientific world and perhaps there's just way too much attention and rightfully so being dedicated among scientists to fight the problem to understand what's going on and maybe not enough attention has been put to making sure everyone understands every detail and we are going to a lot of details here like Josh and I have covered things that we learned in degree in molecular biology yeah. you know in and, our undergraduate degree these are things that took hundreds of years to come to the knowledge of it so it's not like it's not like yeah. um, you know we we expect the science to have the answer to everything you know and the answer never changes there's this expectation in society but that's not the right expectation we can give you the best advice with the information we have at the time we're giving that advice and you can trust that if the information changes and the data changes i will change my advice to best fit what i think is best for the people based on the data that i have at the time of doing it you know that that's the that's the key here so yeah it is an uncomfortable position to take but unfortunately the best thing we can do for everybody right now is to work is to be cooperative to trust that people are taking care of you and have your best interest at, at heart no one likes the situation we're in you could argue that drug companies are happy but you know they might be the only ones profiting and no everyone would like to return back to normal and that i think is a unified human experience yeah can i just add there about the drug companies profiting you know they do make profits but that's the world we've geared them to be in you know if we want them not to make profits we should be funding independent research in drugs and drug development we don't because we don't think it's as important um mm. when we're not uh, uh facing this kind of thing all of a sudden you know in fact i would say drug companies have uh, put themselves up to a massive loss because they've kind of produced certain drugs uh, with uh, public funding as well and diverted resources to a pandemic that you know they don't know that if they give one vaccine that could be it they could wipe the virus out mm-hmm. but it could be that they might need to produce more vaccines mm-hmm. but the opposite is also true you know this could be just be a one time thing it's different to developing drugs for diabetes or hypertension or hypercholesterolemia you know which is a daily thing right 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 uh, a lot of people have kind of shared information across labs uh, public and private companies yeah which is yeah, not, not normal. normal at all they've come together um Pfizer uh, the AstraZeneca group have made a uh, a commitment that as long as it's a pandemic they're not going to generate a single profit from a dose mm-hmm. um so there are all these things as well that some companies have made Pfizer and uh, uh, Moderna haven't said that you know mm. um so you know th- there's pros and cons with everything um let's not take our eye off the ball you know the scientists are giving us a rallying call to act together right. you know mask up <laughs> wash your hands stay 1.5 meters apart be in convenience for a little while and you know, and i guess like long term gain is much yeah better. and i guess like anything like it's like like access, using your prefrontal cortex a little, just a little bit more and going through a little bit of discomfort for that long term gain la, like you know deciding not to have that mcdonald's burger today so that you so that you can have you know so they can reap the benefits tomorrow right correct yeah uh, yeah uh, as human beings we are highly irrational unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> um you know it was a... speak for yourself <laughs> <laughs> it, 
it, I really enjoy talking to you guys. And uh, Josh, I think because of this, because I memang you've always been on my list uh, of people I want to talk to, but I always just didn't want to do something online. But uh, this experiment, uh, uh, it looks good. So maybe we can do a nut. We'll yeah. see if it works. Yeah, we'll see if it works. And by the way, n equals one remains to be seen. Doesn't mean that the next time we do this, uh, the transmission is going to be perfect. The audio is going to be perfect. <laughs> We've already got one. <laughs> you have to do a hundred before it could be statistically powered to say that's doing a, this over yeah, that's uh, a, that's Zoom is, uh, is is uh, is you know the chance of it working well outweighs the chance of it not working. So you, you need to have your stats up today. <laughs> <laughs> But no, oh, I enjoy this. Though. I enjoy this. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoy talking to the both of you. Um, yeah, so we definitely, I think, Josh, we should do another round, but I'll talk to you about that another time. Um, normally, we end the the podcast with either um, thought or recommendation, but I feel that there's a lot of thoughts today, so let's do recommendations. So you can recommend a product, either a book or a TV show or a movie or anything to consume, basically, that you will find, uh, you know, that, yeah, for whatever reason you want to recommend it, just recommend it, yeah. Anyone want to begin? Christian, Christian, you want to go? Ah, uh, yeah, sure. I use a, a online course platform called Coursera. Damn it, Coursera sponsored this, this but okay. And damn, Coursera <laughs> giving you so much sales here. But uh, no, if you if you find yourself at home, you can do these amazing online courses given by universities, really well accredited universities on. Topics that you know may have interested you in the past, but you didn't have money to do it, or you didn't have the time. Uh, you know, do courses like that and upskill yourself. Right. It's a it's an amazing opportunity to do these things now. Brilliant. Um, the okay. So when it comes to COVID specific stuff, try the John Hopkins University and Medicine Coronavirus Resource Center. Mm -hmm. It's got a good tracker. It's got information about testing, everything we've discussed today. It's got typical timeline versus accelerated timeline presented. Nice graphics. You can pick it up. It's got yeah. references to other bits of information that you can take, like the uh, New York Times vaccination page, which has all the vaccines there. So if you've got concerns, read it. Um, and you can, good resources. When it comes to uh, a book, Uh, read the plague by Albert uh, Camus. <laughs> It's a brilliant book. Yeah. Um, I think um, you know they're saying that the the book has been flying off the shelves book. in the last you know, few I, months. I, I read this again uh, during the lockdown, and it was um, it's eye opening and eye opening into human character. Right. Yeah. Um, and if you are interested in science and development of drugs and innovation, this book called The Breakthrough. Mm -hmm. um, brilliant book. Uh, this chap, it's about the uh, immunotherapies in cancer. Right. And it is really fascinating. It'll tell you what scientists do and it's incredible. I I reap the benefits of it because I see it at the front line. Yeah. But what happens at the back rooms? <laughs> well, it, it's nice that you uh, recommended a book by a, a sort of existentialist because I think one of, a lot of people are going through their own mini existential crises Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so I want. And I. Yeah. He he writes very well. It's very easy to read. So yeah. that that's that's another thing. <laughs> he wrote in French, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, he's a French. He didn't write in no, English. translated. Yeah. Um. I, I I'm rereading a book by uh, Victor Frankl called uh, "Man's Search for Meaning." It's about a psychologist who, uh, ends up going to uh, a psychiatrist, psychiatrist. That ends up going to Auschwitz, and um, mm. you know, losing everything. And how how he sustains himself, and uh, and I think basically how you can find hope in the most 
craziest of situations and how their hope can become something more um, substantial, something more concrete for you to to use to ground yourself and fuel yourself forward, right? Um, yeah. I think this this moment can be a real moment for of transformation if you allow it. I think mm. pre this pandemic and post this pandemic, you can be a completely different person for the better and for the worse. And so you mm. actually have a lot of agency in that way. Um, mm. Okay, guys, uh, we've let's see how long we've done this for. I feel like, oh shoot, two hours forty eight minutes. <laughs> Okay, so it's gonna ramble on, ramble on. <laughs> Nobody is going Nobody's to gonna listen, listen to this. <laughs> All right, you may have to edit it. No, man, I'm just gonna release it. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, people can take a week and listen to it. But uh, okay, <laughs> thank you guys so much for coming on. I had a lot of uh, fun, and it was definitely damn informative. Uh, you know, for me, so I've been trying to get more information, and so this way, like this, is the good thing, like It's helped me get information that I also needed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So again, thank you guys. Thank you, Christian Gomez. Thank you, Joshua Mahadevan. Do you guys want to be plug anything to follow y'all or like? No, no, no you no. don't have Christian. Christian <laughs> might might write for your projects. I think. Uh yeah, I'm working on a children's book that might be out early next year. It's called "Does Anyone Care?" A Plight of a Clouded <laughs> Leopard. <laughs> so, if you have kids, buy it. <laughs> nice, nice. Maybe I'll come on a podcast yeah, for sure. when it's out and we can read children's 100%. books. Hundred percent. Okay, thank you very much, Christian Gomez. Thank you very much, Joshua Mahadevan. Uh, you've been listening to the Ruma Roy podcast. In whichever Ruma you're in, we hope you're keeping safe, keeping healthy, and uh, staying good. Take care, everyone, and we are done. Yeah.